You are listening to The New Prisoners. A copy of each week's monologue and source list are available on our Minds page and Substack. Check out our video content on BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, and Brighteon. For audio versions, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and many others. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever you find us, and join the conversation by leaving your comments wherever you can. You can follow The New Prisoners and The New Prisoner Number 6 on Instagram and The New Prisoner Number 6 on Gab or at New Prisoner 6 on Twitter. If you would like to be a guest, please email the new prisoner number 6 at protonmail.com and provide a brief description of the topic or topics that you would like to discuss, and a screener will contact you. You can always choose to appear anonymously. You can now donate to The New Prisoners through anchor.fm slash the new prisoner number six slash support with a monthly donation of 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99. We also have a subscribe store where you can make a one-time or recurring contribution at subscribestar.com slash the hyphen new hyphen prisoners. You can also donate both US dollars and crypto to us on Mines and Odyssey. All donations go towards studio upgrades to make more content and advertising to spread the word about the show. Every amount is appreciated. Now let's get on with the show. Have you ever wondered why the left has become synonymous with meltdowns like Ron Perlman's recent freakout over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's don't say gay bill? Because nothing in the bill says anything of the sort. That's why. The truth or the facts of the matter are not to be discussed with people like Perlman. There's no references to anything in the bill that is ever mentioned in his criticism. It is simply X. And X is bad says, insert celebrity, influencer, politician, etc. But we are all capable of doing the same thing Perlman did this past week if we allow ourselves to take positions without knowing anything about a subject, without knowing why something is being done or happening, just reacting viscerally and even violently without any other basis besides emulating the outrage we see in our media. Reductionist arguments, appeals to name, and all sorts of fallacies can be attributed to this problem and can be organic in nature. All sides of any argument can fall victim to these. But when it becomes a pattern used to strike down legislation, you bet it deserves a closer inspection. A more recent example of this was the Georgia law concerning election integrity. The Election Integrity Act of 2021 was referred to as Jim Crow in the 21st century, and claims of it being linked to white supremacy were thrown around. The bill had nothing to do with race and added ID requirements to absentee voting and made it a crime for volunteers to hand out food and water within 150 feet of polling precincts. It also attempted to secure drop boxes within voting sites, 
and limiting the hours in which people have access to them. The drop boxes, which have been the target of many incidents in the past few elections, are one of many means of committing voter fraud. Voter fraud was claimed by the Democratic Party to be a problem until they started using it to win or steal elections. Now, those claims by their opponents will garner reactions such as claims of their opponents being conspiracy theorists and stunts like walkouts occur. At no point in their defense does the Democratic Party ever address any specific points. They never explain why they are correct. Because if you look at X, this is why X occurred. No. They hit their target audience with rhetoric that gets an emotional or tribal reaction or project their own misdeeds upon their accuser. They never have a logical or even a position based in reality. The specifics of the matter are washed away and replaced with labels and classifications that are to be adhered to by their followers. No one can question how the labels and classifications apply because that would require a bit of knowledge to assess. And that is forbidden. If you are a Democrat, you simply repeat the talking point that the 2020 election was won fair and square, that the shots are safe and effective, that Putin is Hitler. You get the point. That's why you can't tell them or even show them that they are wrong because that isn't their reward system. The system is based on identity. Their identities are assigned just as the labels for these bills are. But the people involved are convinced that they choose them, that they have power, not realizing that their protection can go pop at any moment, that they are being manipulated by the use of language, kept from the truth by misleading or obfuscating media, and kept ignorant by their peer group under threat of reprisal. It's just a big cult and we ain't in it here at the New Prisoners. Using disingenuous assumptions about one's personal views, claiming the person or even yourself are not qualified for the discussion after being presented with counter-evidence, or presenting incorrect evidence while knowing, or still presenting after it's been revealed as incorrect, are all tactics of our enemies in the global corporatist oligarchy. These tactics are perpetuated through the GCO's control over mainstream media, politicians, and industry. We at the New Prisoners are on a mission, like a Blues Brothers kind of mission, to remove as much of the sickness of lies and manipulation from the information people receive through their screens and earbuds. We may use labels, classifications, and accusations too, but we always try to back them up with why we are using those with facts and specifics. Why is the most important part of the argument? If X happened, well, why did X happen? Because Z, that's why. We research the topics we discuss and try to use 
all the available information we have to explain why something is happening. This method, instead of just repeating what the political leaders we like said and nothing else, or just accusing our ideological or intellectual opponents of some sort of deep-rooted fear or malice, is not a tactic we employ because it leaves our audience void of the information necessary for them to come to their own conclusions. That, my brothers and sisters, is what I want to tell all of you listening this week. Like Ryan Christian from The Last American Vagabond always says at the end of his broadcasts, to question everything, but come to your own conclusions. I don't think there's much else I can really add to that other than to keep in mind that even though we may agree on many things, that we too are susceptible to these psychological tactics currently being employed in our popular culture. We too can be lured into an orthodoxy that doesn't allow thoughts outside of its dogmatic rules. Be your own ruler. Look for the reason why. Don't just accept what others hand you as the reason because there's probably a reason why it sounds so simple and easy. Okay, I'm number six, and this is The New Prisoners. And we are without John Henry this week, but he's going to be back, and I'm sure he's going to have plenty to say about what we're going to go over this week, folks. So let's just tear right into it. This one we're starting off with is from the Blaze Media. And it's entitled, FDA Authorizes Second COVID Booster Shot for All Americans Over the Age of 50. So this is from Sarah Taylor. And just going down here, the Food and Drug Administration has given the green light to a second round of booster shots for all Americans over the age of 50. I bet you're all fucking excited. According to various reports, the decision now lies in the hands of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as to how to implement the new authorization. Now, what are the details it says? According to CNN, the FDA has expanded the emergency use authorization of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines to permit adults aged 50 and older to get a second booster shot. Folks, we told you this shit was coming, didn't we? Now, the shot, according to the report, can be administered as early as four months after their first booster dose. So again, the waning is what's occurring here, folks. They're admitting to this uh, in a really kind of shitty way, but they're still admitting that every couple of months, you're going to need to re-up on these boosters or else. Now, the or else what is still debatable, folks. We, We could talk about it just not working after a few months or... The fact that it gives you some form of like fucking AIDS or something. Now, I'm kind of being facetious there, but you know, the the VADs or the vaccine uh, induced um, reactions uh, to your immune system that these things could be having are potentially dangerous, um, if not um, a widespread genocide. So we're we're gonna we're gonna keep a close eye on that one. Don't you worry. But it says here in the article in a release, Doctor Peter Marks director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research said, current evidence suggests some waning of protection over time against serious outcomes from COVID-19 in older and immunocompromised individuals. So the vulnerable, the people that we were supposed to protect with all of this shit, the reason why we rushed it to market, uh, supposedly, um, 
Yeah, it didn't work on those people. And in fact, uh, it affects those people in the worst types of ways uh, whenever it comes to actually preventing anything. Um, and all, all the young people, as we mentioned last uh, week on last week's show, uh, all the young people are the ones that get stuck with all the side effects for their life that don't really have that much um, threat to them uh, based on COVID-19. So in the statistics that we know of currently. So now based on an analysis of emerging data, it says here in the article, a second booster dose of either Pfizer, uh, Pfizer BioNTech or Moderna COVID-19 vaccine uh, could help increase protection levels. I like how they've changed it to that too. Um, it's not immunity, protection levels, folks. When they have to change the language to win arguments, you know they're full of shit. So for these higher risk individuals, yes, yes, the ones I just pointed out that we were supposed to do all this for. Now, additionally, the data shows that an initial booster dose is critical in helping to protect all adults from the potentially severe outcomes of COVID-19, you know, except for like children and like all people up until about the age of 50 that they're talking about here. So uh, that's a, so those who have not received their initial booster dose are strongly encouraged to do so. Oh, I bet they are. I bet they fucking are. Now in the what else category here in the article, it says in a statement on the news, a Moderna spokesman said the FDA's endorsement of a second booster dose will allow millions of Americans to build and maintain protection. <laughs> so they're building it in you and maintaining it, even though it goes away every couple of fucking months or weeks. Who knows? Um, against SARS-CoV-2. Now, the virus continues to evolve, they say, and we are currently on the verge of another potential wave driven by the BA2 variant. Oh, that was the nasty one that uh, John Henry told us about a few weeks ago. Uh, the, the one that's not killing anybody, but it's just so transmissible. Now, it's so transmissible <laughs> that it actually jumps right through all the protection, quote unquote, that these vaccines are giving you. Now, data continues to show that mRNA boosters remain the best defense against severe infection and death, and vaccines are a fundamental part of our public health protection, public health, just like group rights, meaning your individual relationship with your doctor or medical system or whatever the fuck um, is null and void to these people. You are lumped into a group and you are to behave as that group is assigned to behave, as we talked about here in this week's monologue. But other than that, um, how they deal with you is strictly in that vision or in that paradigm. Um, you are not allowed to make individual decisions because those individual decisions could affect public health. Now, healthcare providers have the opportunity to advise higher risk people about when and how to get boosted and build immunity. Oh, they actually said it there. I got to hand them that in advance of future outbreaks. Now, Pfizer, for its part, added, together, these data demonstrate the public health need in the most vulnerable individuals and suggests that an additional booster dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine administered at least four months after the initial booster will restore antibodies to peak levels. Now, it doesn't say for how fucking long. Improve protection in older people? Sure it does. That's why none of this stuff worked 
in the older people as well. And we pointed that out in a study from, of all people, the fucking Lancet uh, last week. It's crazy how they uh, launched those little studies sort of like the week before shit like this gets announced. Priming anyone? Hmm. Who knows? Now, and provide a similar safety profile to that of previous doses. So meaning <laughs> that the unsafe shit that they were giving people before and getting away with the murder, it literally and figuratively, because of their emergency use authorization, um, that emergency is going to continue and they're going to continue using it as a shield uh, to experiment further on more vulnerable people, at least for right now. Um, now, Dr. William Schaffner, infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt University, said that he believes the U.S. ought to wait until there is a clear and present danger from a new variant or new surge to roll out any fourth doses. He says, if you have only one bullet in your gun to shoot, I would prefer to hold fire until the fall. Oh, because that's when cases may really start to increase. Schaffner said, pointing out that he's very concerned that the fourth dose could confuse people who haven't gotten a third dose. <laughs> I'm very concerned, he says, about dividing and not being able to conquer because the messaging will get very, very confusing, he explained. Yeah, because the facts of the matter don't fucking add up. So instead of being confused about that or allowing people to like, you know, question it, um, just wait till they forget all about it and then scare the fuck out of them come the fall with all these new upcoming cases, uh, all these um, all these new upticks in cases, folks. Uh, I'm sure CNN will have the counter back on the screen. And he says, and so I think public health officials and clinicians ought to be continuing to focus on getting the third dose into people who are eligible. So just like a football coach or something like that, we're just going to focus on this from week to week, from game to game. Not going to focus on the championship rounds yet. But that, there you have it, folks. As we told you, the booster doses just keep coming. And those booster doses, guess what? You're going to be fucking paying more money for them. Because why? Because the government already fucking spent all the original amounts of money that you gave them on who knows what the fuck. Now, this picture of Joe Biden's face here, for those of you watching, those of you that aren't watching and just listening via podcast, um, it's of him closing his eyes and with his mouth agape like he's about to shit his pants. So, pretty normal posture for Joe Biden there uh, these days. But uh, the title of this article from the Gateway Pundit says, Say what? Biden demands Congress approve more COVID funding now because we're not going to have enough money to purchase new vaccines later. Oh, yay. Everybody wants to spend more money on this shit, don't we? Now that Joe Biden has proven himself, and this is what the article says, to be nothing short of a dangerous liability after his disastrous trip to Eastern Europe last week, his handlers are pivoting back to COVID in an attempt to memory hole Joe's complete incompetence. I like this so far. Who wrote this? This is by Julian Conradson over at the Gateway Pundit. Good job so far, Julian. Now, on Wednesday, Joe Biden received his fourth dose of the experimental vaccine and spoke to reporters afterward to advocate for Congress to approve more COVID funding immediately in order to prepare for new variants, quote unquote, that could arise in the future. 
Now, according to Biden, if U.S. laws lawmakers don't approve billions more in taxpayer funds, America apparently won't have the money to purchase vaccines or develop new ones when the next wave hits. Let's get our collective awe in 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 this uh, week's episode here. Ready? One, two, three. Ah, oh. yes, really. It says in the article. The so-called leader of the most prosperous nation in history says we will run out of the money for quote-unquote healthcare and soon. Wow, it looks like they're managing our money really well there. But hey, let's send another couple billion to Ukraine to fund the globalist proxy war against Russia. Really doing a good job here in this article there. Uh, No issues with finding the money for that cause, it says. Now, He goes on to say, uh, we are not a serious country with this current criminal cabal in charge. And now this is a quote from Biden in the article. It says, if we need a different vaccine for the future to combat a new variant, we're not going to have enough money to purchase it. Now, in the article, uh, Jordan says here, considering the shellacking the U.S. dollar is currently taking, in addition to the skyrocketing inflation, Biden's warning could be more than a gaffe as we are used to seeing. Did he just say the quiet part out loud? Yeah, it seems like dementia helps with that. Uh, Instead of sending pallets of cash around the world to fund the globalist twisted agenda, how about taking care of the people at home and upholding the oath of office? Wow, I really like this writer. But that's simply too much to ask for this fraudulent regime. Now, you can watch the little video here attached, but It also goes on to say, just last week, Biden came out and said that food shortages, and we talked about this too on last week's episode, are coming and they're going to be real. So his comments on Wednesday seem to fall in line. After we finally emerge from Biden's winter of sickness and death, the writer concludes, we ended up in Biden's springtime of famine and depression. Stolen elections have consequences. Good job, Julian Conradson. I think I called you Jordan there for a second. But yeah, good job, Julian Conradson there. That is an awesome article. So all these articles that I'm going over, folks, these are all included in our source list each week, we call it. So all the articles, videos, links, and various other things, PDFs, whatnot, um, that we review during the show, you can have access to right in your email, or you can access them by um, our Minds page, too. So you can go to our Substack and sign up for our email newsletter there, or you can also go to our Minds page and find them under our blog section, I believe, there. Now, another uh, article that I wanted to bring up this week, and this one is from the Daily Mail, and this concerns what we've been talking about for the past couple minutes. Google billionaire Eric Schmidt denies channeling money into Biden's science office, directly paying staff salaries and having undue influence on policy. Oh, boy, doesn't that sound fucking great. Now, it says here, Schmidt, who has stepped down in his role at Google's parent company, Alphabet, in 2020. Oh, and that wasn't suspect at all. Remember, folks, how all of those CEOs just stepped down in 2020 and found other philanthropic things to do with their time or a bunch of other new companies that are all based around the horseshit they're trying to push on us? Well, yeah, Eric Schmidt from Google is no different. Now, Schmidt 
it says in the article, has even indirectly paid the salaries of OTSP employees. Um, former OTSP general counsel Rachel Wallace report, uh, has repeatedly raised concerns over Schmidt's influence there, and she believes her concerns were the source of the wrath that she faced from the OTSP's former head, Eric Lander, who has stepped down recently for bullying. Oh, he sounds like a bad man. Now, Lander and Schmidt are close associates. Go fucking figure. More than a dozen in the 140-person White House office are current or former employees of Schmidt. Corporatism, anyone? Yeah, that revolving door in the White House isn't just a Google either. There's several others that can be addressed here, but let's just talk about this one for now. In a statement, Schmidt Futures uh, said he had no authority uh, to make any policy decisions. It did not do so through the OSTP. So Schmidt has his own little, uh, let's just say uh, charity or whatever called Schmidt Futures um, that he's using. Uh, and they also <laughs> said that the government OSTP has used pulled philanthropic funding to ensure proper staffing, proper staffing across agencies over the 25 years, 25 years of influence um, from different people like this. Wow. It really shows why we're in the situation we're in, doesn't it? So to go through some of the article, it says Google's former CEO, Eric Schmidt, has denied channeling money into the White House Science Office through his foundation, according to a report published on Monday. Schmidt, who stepped down in his role at Google's parent company, Alphabet, in 2020, now serves on the board of numerous tech companies, including some focus on artificial intelligence. Oh, that sounds great. The Office of Science and Technology Policy... um, OS, which is the OTSP, helps formulate AI policy and steer funding towards the technology. Oh, so I wonder why uh, the former head of Google is seeking to influence AI policy and steer funding towards the technology. <laughs> we live in such a fucking corrupt country. Former OTSP general counsel uh, Rachel Wallace repeatedly raised concerns over Schmidt's influence, which she believes was the source of the wrath she faced from the OTSP's former head, Eric Lander, who stepped on recently for bullying women in the office. Wow, bullying women in the office, according to the report. Now, as I mentioned before, Lander and Schmidt are close associates. Now, Wallace filed a whistleblower complaint. Hmm, that's nice and is now being represented by the Government Accountability Project. Schmidt even indirectly paid the salaries of OTSP employees, according to Politico. Now, Schmidt's charity arm, Schmidt Futures, paid the salaries of two science office employees while they worked as unpaid consultants. Hmm, that sounds kind of shady, the report states. Now, for six weeks, the foundation paid the salary of current chief of staff, Mark Idenoff, who is now one of the most senior officials in the shakeup after Lander's resignation. So they just shuffle the deck and just move the shit heels up. Representatives for Schmidt Futures have denied the claims, insisted there was never any undue influence on policies, and that uh, there have been long deals with the government to help provide expertise and support without any impact on taxpayers. Bullshit. Former OTSP official uh, Tom Khalil, 
chief innovation officer at Schmidt Futures, also remained on the charity's payroll for four months while he was advising the OTSP as an unpaid consultant. He left the office after ethics complaints. Go fucking figure there again. Now, more than a dozen, as it said before, in the 140-person White House office are current or former employees of Schmidt, according to Politico. It's telling, it says here, quoted in the article, that the downfall of the head of the OSTP came not from the apparent ethics violations, but from allegedly mistreating those who attempted to blow the whistle. The revolving door, oh, there you go, mentioned that, uh, between government service and powerful private interests is one reason the American public's trust in its government is at an all-time low. Damn, I couldn't agree more with that statement. But it looks as though, rather than reform, OSTP may have made it worse by creating a situation in which they replace the revolving door with a breezeway, eliminating structural barriers between the two. And that was a quote from Michael Chamberlain, director of government ethics group uh, Protect the Public's Trust. And he told that to uh, Daily Mail. Now, I agree with all that. And one of the things, too, is that, as we mentioned before here, the reason why we call it the globalist or global corporatist oligarchy here at the New Prisoners is because of shit like this. This is corporatism. This is people and business and government having no separation between the two when they blend into one new entity. Now, Wallace said that the science office's efforts to arrange for Schmidt's, uh, Schmidt Futures to pay the salaries of Landers' staff prompted significant ethics concerns, given that Schmidt's financial interests overlapped with the OTSP's responsibilities. Yes, of course. Now, over the past year, not only Wallace, but numerous others on the OTSP's legal team flagged potential conflicts of interest with Schmidt and Schmidt Futures. This quote says, I and others on the legal team had been noticing a large number of staff with financial connections to Schmidt Futures and were increasingly concerned about the influence this organization was able to have through these individuals. Now, that was something that Wallace claimed. Now, some of, the, of Schmidt's financial influence came from in the form of Schmidt Futures fellowships, where the foundation would pay for travel and accommodation of OTSP employees going to science conferences. Oh, it's just like they do with the media. Yeah, they have access media now, folks, where these people give great reviews on things. And you're wondering why, because the movie or video game or whatever is shit. Oh, that's because they wind and dine and schmoozed and maybe even gave prostitutes and cocaine to them. Who, who even fucking knows anymore? Um, <laughs> it's just all kinds of shit that they, they use uh, folks to just buy off uh, people in the media, but then also people in government too. Why wouldn't they use the same tactics there? So. Now, two other OTSP officials continued working part-time at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, a biotech facility formerly led by Lander, where Schmidt serves on the board. So, <laughs> if you're wondering why our institutions are so fucked too, it's because of shitheels like Eric Schmidt being involved with them. Now, it says the two others had their salaries paid by the Federation of American Scientists that Schmidt also 
pays into. <laughs> so the web keeps going. Schmidt, who is worth an estimated $23 billion. You think he has more institutional influence than you? And his wife, Wendy, announced a $150 million gift to the Broad Institute just after Lander was nominated to head the OTSP. I wonder if those were related. Hmm. Schmidt has long tried to sink his teeth into federal science policy. Yeah, you don't say. The billionaire former tech CEO hit the campaign trail for President Obama in 20, <laughs> 2008, <laughs> but underscored that he was doing this personally since Google was officially neutral. Yeah, right. Yeah, fucking right. We know that Google's not neutral. It, it, and it's not just in their search, search results, folks. It has everything to do with their data collection on you and everything else. But throughout the Obama administration, it says in the article, Google representatives attended White House meetings more than once a week. According to an analysis by The Intercept and the Campaign for Accountability, a spokesman for Schmidt issued a lengthy statement to both Political and Daily Mail refuting claims in the article. And that quote is, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is the OSTP, has been chronically underfunded for decades. That's the reason why we had to uh, infiltrate them, they say. (laughs) I'm just making my own quotes up here. Uh, Now, leading organizations in the quote, it says, have come together to provide funding and other support for the OSTP. Now, this is the other one says, but... Schmidt Futures has proudly worked with this group in recent years, and we have publicly acknowledged our contributions and support of private-public partnerships. Does that sound fucking familiar to you folks? I think it does. Yes, that is the corporatism that we speak of. But it says to support talent and advance scientific innovations for the betterment of society. Another quote, we were disappointed by the reporting in a recent article that misrepresented our relationship with OSTP. We have great respect for the media and for the journalists who report stories, even though with which we may disagree. However, we also believe in the media's responsibility to report the facts, which we produced previously in this case, (laughs) in order to provide the most complete an accurate picture. The unsubstantiated thesis of the article is that there was undue influence over the department, which there was not. The following is a brief list that will provide a more complete picture of how science funding in the U.S. really works and why the country requires much more of it. So not only are they not sorry for it and claim that they didn't do it, but they need to do a lot more of it, folks. Oh, man. Now, the United States government and the OSTP have used pooled philanthropic funding to ensure proper staffing across agencies for over 25 years. And that should sound disgusting to you after hearing all this shit. But it says that specifically the OSTP has a long tradition of bringing in technical expertise and fellows to address the rapidly changing science and tech landscape. As the statute that created the OSTP in 1976 urges the director to utilize with their consent to the fullest extent possible, the services 
personnel, equipment, facilities, and information, which includes statistical information, of public and private agencies and organizations and individuals in order to avoid duplication of effort and expense. Wow, that really worked out, didn't it? In 1971, Congress passed a bipartisan-supported Intergovernmental Personnel Act, or the IPA. Hmm, that's a nasty kind of sounding IPA. To enable tours of duty across government for subject matter experts from universities and nonprofit organizations to provide fast and effective Safe and effective, they say. Technical expertise and services for public benefit to the federal government. So just block out the public benefit part and uh, make it benefit to the federal government, their editor, because that's what it really should say. Often at no cost to taxpayers. Now, Schmidt Futures, it says here, is always proud to answer the call to serve when our country needs us. Oh, aren't they nice? In 2021, the Federation of American Scientists established a talent hub to support fellowships in the federal government. Schmidt Futures is just one of 20 organizations or initiatives to contribute to the fund. One of 20. This funding is administered by a neutral party, bullshit, to several agencies based on need, mm, I'm calling more bullshit there. And Schmidt Futures has no control over specific appointments, policies, or agencies that the funding supports. And I will also throw down a third bullshit in just that one sentence. Schmidt Futures staff had no authority to make any policy decisions and did not do so through OSTP. And the story presents no evidence or examples to the contrary, they say. OSTP has always had and continues to retain full discretion and ownership over appointments, hires, and policy decisions. Wow. Now, let's move on to this next one, too. This one's also from the Daily Mail. Now, we've been talking about corruption in uh, science in this country and around the world for the, the, the past couple minutes. So, let's, uh, let's, let's top it off with this one. Revealed, Dr. Fauci silenced all Wuhan lab leak, leak, leak theories after being schmoozed by gain-of-function researcher Peter Daszak, whose controversial bad experiments may have sparked the pandemic, New Report claims. So some of the highlights that, uh, from this one here that the Daily Mail pointed out to us were that the investigators alleged that Dr. Anthony Fauci, all hail Lord Fauci, silenced any discussion about COVID being caused by a lab leak and not through animal-to-human transmission. Fauci also helped a controversial scientist get millions in federal funding to study bats. Now, Vanity Fair researchers who have analyzed more than 100,000 documents have made that claim. Uh, They also allege that the NIH uh, funds may have contributed to the development of the COVID nineteen of COVID nineteen, if it was indeed created at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. That sounds fantastic. The investigators also claim Dazic and researchers in Wuhan tried to hide the evidence about the pandemic's early spread. The VF report accuses Dazic of presenting the lab leak hypothesis as a groundless and destructive conspiracy theory. Hmm. 
You mean just like um, Fauci and um, Francis Collins ordered people in the media to do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that seems all, all in line with that. Now, the reports also say that Fauci contributed to the narrative, citing an instance in 2020 when he reaffirmed a theory of natural spread from animals to humans. And although the report is not conclusive in how COVID originated, it does provide evidence that Daszak's research was risky and possibly connected. So let's, let's jump into this. America's coronavirus czar, Dr. Anthony Fauci, silenced any discussion about COVID being caused by a lab leak and not through animal-to-human transmission. After helping a controversial scientist get millions in funding to study bats, a Vanity Fair investigation has revealed. Analyzing more than 100,000 leaked documents, the magazine claimed that Fauci's approval of Peter Daszak helped this nonprofit. EcoHealth Alliance, an organization dedicated to shielding society from emergency and infectious diseases, to develop the COVID-19 virus in a laboratory in China. Wow. Let me read that again. Analyzing more than 100,000 leaked documents, Vanity Fair has claimed that Fauci's approval of Peter, Z- Peter Daszak's nonprofit, EcoHealth Alliance, which is an organization dedicated to shielding society from emergency infectious diseases, from emerging, I'm sorry, infectious diseases, to develop the COVID-19 virus in a laboratory. Yep. They claim that they were doing it to protect us. It ended up in this. Like so many other government programs, like so many other claims, like so many other things that happen to us folks in this world. Claim that they're doing good. The banality of evil. We're just here trying to stop the next pandemic. Well, it turns out they probably, according to this, uh, fucking caused it. And we've been saying that for a long time. But, you know, just more evidence to stack on top of these people, the more weight that we can add to them to sink them further down um, into whatever pool of uh, or body of water that we decide to throw them into eventually um, is welcome here at the New Prisoners. So we're, we're going to continue on. They also claim researchers associated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, including Daszak, tried to hide evidence about the pandemic's early spread as lab leak hypothesis began to emerge. Now, while the report is not conclusive in how the pandemic was started, the magazine provides evidence that Daszak was aware the gain-of-function research his organization conducted was risky and that he neglected to provide transparency about his projects to the U.S. government as promised. So, on the next part of the article, it says, more than two years into the global pandemic, and yes, it has been more than two years into this, and don't forget, the emergency the emergency is still underway, which is why they can give you your fourth booster now, and uh, even more boosters in the fall, apparently, um, that investigators are still trying to trace the origin of the COVID-19 virus that has killed more than 22 million people worldwide. Now, I don't know about that quote there, the 22 million, because as we found out, those numbers have been fucked with a lot. Now, some allege that Fauci, whose agency in 2014 issued a 3.7 million grant to EcoHealth Alliance, directly contributed to the pandemic spread by providing funds that were used to support gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
EcoHealth issued the WIV or the Wuhan Institute of Virology, if you will, nearly $600,000 in sub awards before the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, suspended the grant in July 2020 due to its controversial work. Now, the magazine Vanity Fair, which reviewed more than 100,000 internal eco-health documents predating the pandemic, has interviewed five former staff members and spoke to 33 other sources. Claims that while the organization's paper trail doesn't specifically state where COVID came from, it shows how the uh, the nonprofit operated under murky grant agreements, flimsy oversight, and the pursuit of government funds for scientific advancement, in part by pitching research of a steeply escalating risk. Now, there are multiple theories surrounding the birth of COVID-19, with natural origin proponents arguing the virus jumped from a bat host to an intermediate species and then infected humans. Others suspected a lab-related incident from the inadvertent exposure of a scientist during field research to the accidental release of a natural or manipulated strain during laboratory work, the magazine claimed. There is reportedly a lack of concrete evidence to support either theory, prompting journalists, scientists, and other sleuths to place scrutiny on DASIC, EcoHealth, and WIV researchers for the work in the lab, as well as Fauci for indirectly supplying the U.S. government funds to the facility. In June of 2021, biologist Jesse D. Bloom, whom colleagues allege wanted to dig deep and discover the truth about how COVID evolved, confronted Fauci by providing him with a preprint of a paper he was seeking to have peer-reviewed and published. And Bloom's paper, it says, which was obtained by Vanity Fair, detailed how in early genomic sequences of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, had somehow vanished without a trace. (laughs) Oh, God. The biologist claims the genomic sequences were initially published in a Chinese paper, but had since been deleted from NIH databases. Our own databases, folks. The NIH databases, not Chinese ones. At the request of researchers in Wuhan. Hmm. Think they were in on it together? Maybe. Now, Bloom alleging the deleted genomic sequences could be key to tracking when the virus emerged. Yeah, that's not important, is it? And how it might have evolved. Again, not not fucking important, right? Uh, Believed the disappearance of the sequences raised the possibility. Raised the possibility, he says. That the Chinese government was trying to cover up evidence about the early spread of COVID. I wonder under whose direction. Was it just Xi making that decision there or some other lackey underneath? Or was it us here in the United States that was part of the cover-up? I think so. But moving on. After receiving the preprint of Bloom's paper, Fauci and his boss, and this is why I think so, folks, NIH Director Francis Collins, allegedly organized a Zoom meeting with the biologists to discuss his findings. Four additional scientists, biologist uh, Christian Anderson and virologist Robert Gary, 
who were invited by the NIH and biologist Sergey Pond and Rasmus Nielsen, who were invited by Bloom, attended the call. After he presented his research, Bloom claims Anderson interjected, claiming his preprint was deeply troubling. That's it. <laughs> and just like I talked about in the monologue this week, folks, man, when all they got is deeply troubling and no real clear explanation or fact citing, um, yeah, <laughs> it's probably work. You're probably being fucked. So now Anderson reportedly told the, the research uh, that NIH policy entitled the Chinese scientists, no, let's start this over again. Anderson reportedly told the research that NIH policy entitled the Chinese scientists to delete their sequences from the database if they wanted to do so, and that it was unethical for Bloom to analyze them further. So Anderson's reply to him, besides it being deeply troubling, is that, yeah, the Chinese can just delete shit if they want to, and you shouldn't question it. He also allegedly claimed that there was nothing unusual about the early genomic sequences in Wuhan. How the fuck would you know? Uh, prompting a heated argument between Anderson and Nielsen. I bet. Um, now, Fauci then weighed in. Oh, here's, here's where the good shit comes. Objecting to the preprint's description of Chinese scientists surreptitiously deleting the sequences, Vanity Fair has stated, claiming that the immune, immunologist said, the word was loaded, and the reason that asked for the deletions was unknown. That doesn't make any fucking sense, Fauci. If you're objecting to the preprint's description of Chinese scientists surreptitiously deleting the sequences, and it's unknown, then I, I just, uh, all right, let's fuck it. Let's, let's move on. All right, there's plenty more, I'm sure. Yes. As more scientists called for transparency about the origin of the virus, Daszak sought to present the lab leak hypothesis as a groundless and destructive conspiracy theory. Oh, we've heard that plenty of times. We're used to that one. Similarly, Fauci, Anderson, Gary, and a small group of scientists reportedly held confidential discussions. That sounds like a conspiracy, doesn't it? Dating back to February of 2020, working to enshrine the natural origin theory, despite the fact that several of them privately expressed that they felt a lab-related incident was likelier. So even going against what they thought was true, they went with the orthodoxy. Around that time, it says here in the article, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Robert Redfield, allegedly urged uh, Fauci to vigorously investigate both hypotheses. He had to take the lab leak hypothesis with extreme seriousness, Redfield told uh, the magazine, adding, I personally felt it wasn't biologically plausible that SARS-CoV-2 went from bats to humans through an intermediate animal and became one of the most infectious viruses to humans. Redfield also claimed that after suggesting support for research into uh, both theories, he was then excluded from further discussions about the virus's origin. Yes, just like in the media, they uh, attempted, and when I say they, I mean Fauci and uh, the other fraud, Collins and Daszak and all these other fucking people, Anderson, Gary, and all the others included in this, were all part of the cover-up. They were all part of the fucking conspiracy, weren't they? 
And it says right here, I mean, this really, this really nails it. Their goal was to have a single narrative. And also, other researchers claim Daszak attempted to bury information about COVID's genesis, arguing he flatly refused to share progress reports from his contested research grant. The EcoHealth president was even dismissed from a task force investigating the birth of the virus because of failed uh, to disclose because he failed to disclose his knowledge on the subject. Yes, he was also part of Dazic was also part of the investigation into what happened there. The person responsible for it was responsible for the investigation. That's how we do it in government, folks. That's how we do it. Now, Dazic and the NIH have acted badly. Uh, this is according to Columbia University's economist, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, who dismissed Dazic from the task force. There has been a lack of transparency, and there is a lot more to know, and that can be known. Sachs um, argued that the NIH should support an independent scientific investigation to examine the possible role the NIH, EcoHealth, and the WIV, and also a partner laboratory at the University of North Carolina hmm, had in the pandemic. Now, it has been floated around quite a lot, folks. And I believe we briefly talked about it here, too, that, um, yeah, we think that this shit may have come from China. In fact, it's most likely that it did. But that doesn't mean it hasn't come from uh, us in some way or that it didn't come from us, as in coming from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So let's uh, read further, though. Both hypotheses are still very much with us and need to be investigated seriously and scientifically, um, the, the quote says. So, Dazic has also been accused of being relentless in his pursuit of obtaining NIH grant money from Fauci for EcoHealth's research. He would invite Fauci to EcoHealth events that were described on invitations as educational, despite the fact that nonprofit officials refer to them as cultivation events in which they should network with prospective federal funders. So it's a cultivation event, folks. It's not for education. It's not for the thing that they said it's going to be for. It's to enrich and empower them. That's always, always the scenario, isn't it? Now, the group would spend at approximately $8,000 on each cultivation event. And these kinds of events are common among many non-governmental organizations and nonprofits, which depend upon both public and private donors for support, Dazic told the magazine, defending the parties. Now, Dazic also repeatedly lauded Fauci, requesting he serve as a panel speaker at select EcoHealth events. And in December of 2013, Dazic reportedly emailed David Morenz, Fauci's senior advisor, seeking his participation on a panel. And according to Vanity Affair, uh, Va- Affair, Vanity Fair, Morenz replied, write Tony directly, thanking him for meeting you, uh, meeting with you all recently, and then inviting him to be a member of this Cosmos Club discussion. That way, it is personal and doesn't look cooked by us. <laughs> I like that. We need to make the public appearance that it doesn't look cooked. Well, motherfuckers, now we know. 
that it was. It was indeed cooked. Although Fauci declined the invitation, along with several others, Daszak remained firm in his pursuit of the health leader and his federal funding. Morenz, seemingly trying to help Daszak in his mission, told the EcoHealth leader in February 2016. So it sounds like collusion here to get um, the funding uh, through Fauci's um, little servant boy here. Um, but it says, Moren seemingly trying to help Daszak in his mission, told EcoHealth leader in 2016, and in February 2016, that Fauci, Fauci normally says no to almost everything like this. Unless, <laughs> you, you folks are going to love this, unless ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox are all there with cameras running. If he were asked to give the main talk or the only talk, that might increase the chances. So as if you're going to fuck with us to get the funding, Fauci's little errand boy uh, says to Dazic, he is all setting up this conspiracy to commit um, genocide against the people of Earth. <laughs> then, uh, yeah, we have to make him a star. Make sure he's on camera. Yeah, that's 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 the only and the caveat we really need here to get that funding going. Now, poor Moran's trip. Dazic invited Fauci to give a presentation on the Zika virus. Y'all remember that one? Uh, back in March of 2016, which he accepted. I wonder how many media outlets were there. And then it also secured RSVPs among uh, guests from an array of deep-pocketed federal agencies. So once you get Fauci on board, too, you might get funding from a whole bunch of other fucking people, too. Yeah, there we go. Jackpot. Now, however, Daszak's persistence in bringing Fauci to his table is not the only act to raise concern among scientific sleuths. His 3.1 million grant was first met with alarms in May of 2016 as it entered its third year. He had reportedly failed to provide the NAH with his two-year annual progress report as required by the organization. When the report finally arrived, it indicated scientists wanted to create an infectious clone of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, despite the Obama administration's imposed moratorium a new federal funding for research that could make influenza, MERS, or SARS viruses more virulent or transmissible. Hmm. That might be why the report was never really given. So, Dazic's researchers allege the SARS-like chimeras. Yes. Yes, folks. He said it. Dazic's researchers alleged the SARS-like chimeras from their gain-of-function experiment exempt from the morat- or exempt from the moratorium because the strains used had not previously been known to infect humans. Wow, that's a hell of an excuse. Oh, we've never infected a human with this before, so it's all cool. However, some researchers argued, and probably smartly, that Dazic's experiment was still too risky, prompting him to offer the NIH a compromise. Now, the compromise, I quote, is, if any of the recombined strains showed 10 times greater growth than a normal virus, we will immediately, one, stop all experiments with the mutant, two, inform our NIAID program officer and the UNC, the, uh, which is the Institutional Biosafety Committee at the University of North Carolina there, 
of these results and three, participate in decision-making trees to decide appropriate paths forward. Doesn't really say what those could be though. Now the mention of UNC uh, brought a puzzled response from the NIH who cited that DASIC's proposal indicated the research would be conducted at the WIV in China, (laughs) not in North Carolina. So they asked, can you clarify where the work with the chimeric viruses will actually be performed? And the NIH program officer reportedly wrote to Daszak asking him that. Nearly two years later, I'm sorry, nearly two weeks later, two weeks later, after a second request for clarification, Daszak responded, you are correct to identify a mistake in our letter. UNC has no oversight of the Chimera work, all of which will be conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So he did try and chime in and clarify, not done here in the United States, folks, but over in China, uh, where it's much, much safer, of course. (laughs) We will clarify tonight with Professor uh, Zhengli Shi, who exactly, who will be notified if we, uh, if we see enhanced replication Now, my understandings is that I will be notified straight away as principal investigator and that I can then notify you at NIAID. Apologies for the error. Oh, thanks, Peter. In July, the NIH accepted DASIC's terms under the Agreement of Mutual Transparency, in which both parties would disclose concerning developments involving the lab-constructed viruses. Oh, This is terrific, it says. We are very happy to hear that our gain-of-function research funding, pause, has been lifted. He replied to the NIH officer upon receipt of of approval. So it was well known within the NIH offices what was going on here and what the problems were. And then Daszak was under scrutiny again in April 2020 when theories about the origin of COVID resurfaced. A reporter asked then-President Donald Trump during a COVID press briefing why the U.S. government would support a $3.7 million grant to a Chinese lab. And Trump said, we will end that grant very quickly, prompting a follow-up question from another reporter directed at Fauci about whether a lab could be responsible for COVID. And Fauci answered, alleging a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists determined the virus was totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. And the next day, Daszak reportedly emailed Fauci to thank him for publicly standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from a bat-to-human spillover, not a lab release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And Fauci? reportedly thanked the scientists back. Conspiracy theory? Or just plain old conspiracy, folks? Well, we'll move on. Now, something else that has recently emerged, and this was recently pointed out to us by uh, our friend um, over at Liberty Conspiracy, Gardner Goldsmith, uh, he has put together a clip collection for us all here to uh, enjoy on BitChute. 
Um, he's also on Odyssey and Rubble, just as we are. But if you want to go and take a look at this little clip of Anthony Fauci here, what that clip uh, goes over is, is that Anthony Fauci, well, he was telling the truth about naturally acquired immunity. <laughs> he explains that if somebody has contracted influenza, that they don't need to get the flu shot because they have the best fucking immunity. I'm paraphrasing here. They have the best fucking immunity you can imagine, folks. They have natural immunity. Those were words. Words that came out of Anthony Fauci's goddamn mouth. Oh, okay. But thank you, Guard, for posting that and many of the other videos that you just recently posted. Guard's been killing it lately. So definitely go over and give Guard a follow on BitChute, or Odyssey, or Rumble, all the places that we're at. And then while you're at it, too, why don't you go ahead and give uh, Silas Guthier or Silas Speaks a follow as well, because he just recently posted a video about another virus they were playing with in these laboratories. And this one is the Crimean uh, Congo hemorrhagic fever. That sounds like a great one. I want to get that and go to the local buffet and just spread that around to everybody. That sounds like a fucking fantastic idea. No, you, you definitely don't want it. This uh, this one, uh, folks. I mean, when you talk about uh, how nasty the the COVID was and all the different things that can happen to you there and the shots, uh, you definitely don't want to fuck with the uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, the the video is just fantastic, and the uh, the future that we could be living in where things like this are consistently uh, weaponized or, or released uh, amongst us, rather being you know types like this that are really dangerous or ones that really aren't, um, I, I still think the effects could be devastating. So definitely check out this, uh, this wonderful video. Now, let's go on to a different topic here. Let's go on to a, a, another narrative that's also falling apart around us that we've been covering. Well, this one's from the New York Post. Clinton campaign and DNC fined by the FEC for lying about the Steele dossier payments. Yes. Yes, they did. The Federal Election Commission has fined both Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and the Democratic National Committee for lying about how they spent money used to fund the now debunked Steele dossier on former President Donald Trump. The Clinton campaign and the DNC will be forced to pay $8,000 and $105,000, respectively, for mislabeling payments that ultimately went to Fusion GPS, the consulting firm that commissioned the dossier, according to the FEC documents viewed by the Post. Now, just to go back here, Hillary Clinton and the DNC were able to put a conspiracy theory that they themselves concocted into the media that affected not only the presidency of Donald Trump, but all of our lives um, that spent millions of dollars in investigations that caused people to lose uh, tons of money and, and lawyer fees and everything else and just ruin people's lives um, that put the both security of our elections and international security um, you know, with our relations with Russia and countries like Ukraine. Yeah, go fucking figure there that we're going through that bullshit still um, that put all of this at risk. They only got they got forced to pay Clinton $8,000 and the DNC $105,000. Guys, when we get to some of the charity shit a little bit later in this, um, that is chump change. That is nothing. That's not even the cost of a fucking dinner to these people. That's how much they were penalized for doing so. Now, 
The fines stem from a complaint originally filed in 2018 by the Coolidge Reagan Foundation, which was informed of the outcome on Tuesday. The Clinton campaign and the DNC paid more than $1 million combined to powerful Democratic law firm Perkins Coie, which engaged Fusion GPS to dig for dirt on Trump. Now, Fusion GPS, in turn, hired former British spy Christopher Steele, whose namesake dossier included allegations that Russian security services possessed a tape of Trump in a Moscow hotel room with prostitutes who were supposedly urinating on a bed where the Obamas had previously stayed. The FAC said Clinton and the DNC claimed the money was given to Perkins Coie to hire Fusion GPS was reported on disclosure forms as having gone toward legal advice and services. Yeah, just, yeah, really specific there. Rather than opposition research. Well, the commission ruled it had found probable cause that both the Clinton campaign and the DNC had violated election law. Had violated election law. Our our secure and just the best election systems Ever. You should you should never question them, folks. Never question them. Now it says that after that, after they violated election law by not being sufficiently specific about the purpose of the payments mentioned, and not including detailed information about Fusion GPS in the disclosure forms, that both the Clinton campaign and the DNC did not admit the FEC's finding, but said they will not further contest the commission's finding of probable cause, according to the documents reviewed by the Post. Now, lawyers for both Democratic entities maintain the payments were reported in accordance with the law and commission guidelines, claiming that Fusion GPS's work would assist Perkins Coie in providing legal advice. They also argued that Fusion GPS's work was protected under attorney-client privilege. Those bastards, how dare they claim that? The ones that are trying to violate James O'Keefe's attorney-client privilege with Project Veritas and leaking shit to the New York Times. Yeah, the same fucking people. Oh, now we have attorney-client privilege when we get fucking caught violating our election laws. But it says here, despite its murky, uh, murky sourcing, the dossier was used by the feds. Of course it was. Between October 2016 and September of 2017 to successfully apply for surveillance warrants targeting former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. And in November, Igor Dashenko, described as a key source for information in the dossier, was arrested and charged with lying to the FBI about the sources he tapped for his dubious intelligence. Dashenko was nabbed as part of special counsel John Durham's investigation into the origin of the FBI's Russia probe. Now, we've been covering uh, Durham's investigation here for the full length of our uh, <laughs> Our career here as podcasters, and we'll continue to do that. But uh, yeah, that investigation's been going on for quite a while, hasn't it? We're still waiting for uh, the frog marches to begin. But um, it says, uh, former President Donald Trump said that the ruling confirmed his belief that the 2016 Democratic candidate perpetuated a major hoax against his campaign. It says here in quotes, wow, just out that the 2016 Clinton campaign and the DNC paid the FEC today for violating the law by failing to disclose that their payments for 
legal advice and services to law firm Perkins Coie was, in fact, a guise to hire numerous companies, all of whom are now named defendants in my lawsuit. Yes. To try and to take down and illegally destroy your favorite president, me, he said in a statement. This was done to create, as I've stated many times and is now confirmed, a hoax funded by the DNC in the Clinton campaign. This corruption is only beginning to be revealed and is un-American and must never to be allowed to happen again. Where do I go to get my reputation back, Trump says. I take it uh, the election integrity and reputation of it um, has been shit on by this. And uh, from that, we're going to go on to more reputations being shit on. Let's talk about our intelligence agencies. Now, the CIA officer, and this is from the Epic Times, the CIA officer, uh, which was one of the ones who signed the Hunter Biden laptop letter, is now claiming credit for Trump's loss in 2020. Says here, folks, from Zachary Steibler of Epic Times, one of the former CIA officers who signed a letter claiming stories about a laptop allegedly belonging to Hunter Biden were disinformation. Says he helped swing the 2020 election away from former President Donald Trump. His quote is, I take special pride in personally swinging the election away from Trump. Now, this is a quote from John Seifer who served for decades as a senior operations officer at the CIA. Now, he wrote that in a recent post on Twitter. He also, and I quote, said, I lost the election for Trump. Well, then I feel pretty good about my influence. Cypher and 50 other former U.S. intelligence officials signed the letter in October 19, 2020, alleging that the effort to distribute its contents has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, despite not knowing whether the laptop was legitimate. The letter was at the core of a story from Politico that claimed that the New York Post story about the laptop was Russian disinformation. Oh man, we're hearing that plenty these days, aren't we? The Post was the first to report about emails on the laptop, which was dropped off at a computer repair store and never picked up by then-presidential candidate Joe Biden's son, according to the store's owner. While the FBI picked up the computer and a hard drive from the store's owner, the Bureau apparent in action, the Bureau's apparent inaction in probing the matter prompted him to pass on a copy of the hard drive to an, an attorney, to an attorney representing former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who in turn passed it to the post. So it was after the FBI picked up the computer and a hard drive from the store owner, the store owner looked at the Bureau's apparent inaction and then had to reach out to Rudy Giuliani to try and get justice. So in October of 2020, October 14th, the story about the emails came as some voters were still deciding whether to vote for Biden or Trump. Now, the story was widely questioned by legacy media outlets, it was suppressed by social media platforms, and it was claimed to be part of a Russian effort, despite top officials such as Director of National Intelligence or DNI, uh, John Ratcliffe, saying there was no evidence that was the case. Cypher is one of few former officials who signed the letter 
to respond to fresh questions about the laptop's contents after more legacy media outlets, including Politico, said they've confirmed that it's legitimate. Now, Cypher got into arguments with former acting DNI Richard Grinnell and others on Twitter, where he later said his claims of helping Trump uh, lose were sarcasm. Oh, that was just a joke, folks. He all <laughs> trust the CIA guy. Yeah, it was just it was just a joke. I was just faking. He also wrote that the letter didn't say the laptop was disinformation, but in May 2020, 2021, <laughs> posted a link to the Politico story that did say that. So yeah, they were just getting help from the media. They may not have directly lied, but the media can do that for them, can't they? Now, Nick Shapiro. Once a top aide to former CIA director John Brennan, oh, no fucking <laughs> surprise there, both Shapiro and Brennan side the missive and who, provided, and who provided it to Politico hasn't responded to requests for comment from the Epic Times. Most of the other signers didn't respond to requests for comment or decline the requests either. Now, former DNI James Clapper, oh, what a piece of shit, told the paper that he stands by the statement made at the time. So I didn't lie, but I knew this at the time. Now, that could mean that you didn't lie, James, but we know you're a fucking liar. And if it turns out that you were just devastatingly wrong about something and it cost Trump the election, shouldn't there be some sort of penalty for that? Shouldn't there be some sort of penalty for disinformation such as that? Hmm, I don't know, but I'm about it. I think sounding such a cautionary note at the time was appropriate, Clapper said. I also think that um, maybe jail time for you, uh, Clapper, is, is also warranted, you fucker. The letter explicitly stated that we didn't know if the emails were genuine, but that we were concerned about Russian disinformation efforts, said Russ Travers, a former acting director of the National Counterterrorism Center. He says, I spent 25 years as a Soviet Russian analyst, given the context of what the Russians were doing at the time, and continue to do, Ukraine being just the latest example, I considered the cautionary warning to be prudent. Oh, man. It seems like this shit never ends with the intelligence officials being wrapped up in this, doesn't it? Well, let's look at the next one. The Washington Post, speaking of intelligence, because... I don't know if you folks knew this or not, but the Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, has a contract with the CIA and many other government organizations. So why wouldn't they deny that information up front, just as their counterparts in the intelligence agencies have done? And now, after the election, after the damage has been done, months afterwards, we find out the conspiracy theory was actually really just a conspiracy that was true, and nobody's going to be fucking held account for it. Now, the Washington Post joins New York Times in finally emitting emails from the Hunter Biden laptop are real. Washington Post on Wednesday became the second major news outlet to reverse course and admit that emails from the infamous Hunter Biden laptop are authentic. Nine months after I obtained them from a year and a half after the <laughs> New York Post first reported on them. The paper said two security experts used cryptographic signatures from Google and other technology companies to validate nearly 22,000 emails from 2009 to 2019, including messages related to Hunter Biden's controversial overseas business dealings. Now, here's my question, folks. 
That's what we just read about Eric Schmidt and other people influencing our elections. And after uh, Mark Zuckerberg and others were outed for doing so, we really trust anything coming out of Google and other technology companies right now uh, investigating this? I really don't. But it says that some verified emails involved a deal President Biden's son pursued with uh, CEFC China Energy conglomerate, for which he was paid nearly $5 million, according to the Washington Post. Other verified emails related to his work for the Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings, for which Hunter Biden was paid as much as $83,333 a month, or $1 million a year. In October of 2020, the New York Post exclusively revealed the existence of Hunter Biden's emails after being given a copy of the hard drive from a damaged MacBook Pro laptop that the owner of a repair shop in the Biden's family hometown of Wilmington, Delaware, said was dropped off in April of 2019 and never retrieved. So we just went over that in the last article. There's a great shot of Hunter there. And uh, following the expose, the Washington Post fact checker (laughs) feature said that the paper has not been able to verify or authenticate these emails and said there were fears that the emails could be part of a broader disinformation campaign by Russia. So just circular reporting, folks. Well, the intelligence agencies thinks that it is. So we're going to report that, and then we're just going to repeat it over and over again, like it's a fact. So people don't really or can't really tell the difference between what is fact and what we're speculating here. Hmm. I wonder how often they do that. I think they do it a lot. Now, Washington Post op-eds also called the emails unverified and said they have never been authenticated, and a news analysis uh, dismissed the New York Post reporting as sketchy. On Wednesday, the Washington Post said it was given a copy of the hard drive in June by Republican activist Jack Maxey, who previously worked as a researcher for the War Room podcast run by Steve Bannon, a former advisor to ex-President Donald Trump. So the paper said it spent months reviewing the data and making two copies of the hard drive so they could be analyzed by Matt Green, a Johns Hopkins University security researcher. Hmm, Johns Hopkins University. What have they been involved in in the past few years too? Another fucking hoax. I wonder. I wonder the connections there, folks. Now, and it was also saying here, uh, it was also analyzed by Jake Williams, a forensics expert and former National Security Agency operative, the NSA. The liar, James Clapper, was involved with the NSA. That's when he, along with the other people in the NSA, illegally spied on us Americans for fucking years. What he says was unwittingly, just like at the time. So, Both experts concluded that the verified emails carried cryptographic signatures that would be hard to fake, even for the best computer hackers. Now, earlier this month, the New York Times said it obtained emails that appeared to have come from the laptop, and we reported on that here at the New Prisoners, and which were authenticated by people familiar with them, and the federal tax probe of Hunter Biden that he publicly acknowledged in December of 2020. The Times buried its verification of the emails in the 24th paragraph of a 38-paragraph story that said Hunter Biden had paid off a significant tax debt to the IRS, potentially making it harder for prosecutors to win a conviction or a long sentence against him for tax fraud. 
oh, he just paid the IRS. So it's okay. It's all okay now, folks. He, he paid the IRS for all that stuff. Now, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who is with, uh, uh, who with Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, has been investigating Hunter Biden's overseas business deals. And they responded by accusing the great lady of finally, quietly covering its tracks. He says, I'm just amazed that the New York Times just now came to the conclusion that the Hunter Biden laptop was genuine. That was a quote from Johnson. Uh, he told that to WABC 7070 AM's The Cat's Roundtable last week. Oh, man. Oh, sure, that's a great show. Uh, where have they been? That was pretty obvious within a week or two of the New York Post stories. And on Wednesday, U.S. Representative, and we're going to get to this in a moment, folks, uh, U.S. Representative Matt Gates from Florida had content from and files from and copies from the Hunter Biden laptop entered into the congressional record during a House Judiciary Committee hearing. It's unclear if the material includes the many sexually explicit photos, and we've talked about this here on the show, and videos that were stored on the laptop, such as a raunchy 12-minute video clip that appears to show the future first son smoking crack while engaged in a sex act with an unidentified woman. And when we say unidentified, we also mean age, folks. Wow, what could have been going on there? Well, Let's look into the congressional record for that in the future, shall we? Because Hunter Biden's laptop material entered into congressional record. This next article from the New York Post says, now this article goes on to say, it's now an official matter of record. Material from Hunter Biden's infamous laptop was entered into the congressional record on Tuesday at the request of Representative Matt Gates. Thanks, Matt. The, rep the Florida Republican made the move during a hearing on oversight of the FBI cyber division after its assistant director, Brian Vordran, Vor, what is it, Vordran, uh, testified that he didn't have any information about the Hunter Biden laptop. This is the FBI cyber division, folks. What the fuck else are they working on? <laughs> that, that their assistant director of the division, Brian Vordran, that he testifies that he didn't have any information about this, this Hunter Biden laptop. Now, it says which the uh, bureau seized from a Delaware repair shop in 2019. We know that. Now, the House Judiciary Committee chairman, Jerry Nadler, who's a Democrat from New York, who also, and I should have grabbed this for this episode, folks. I apologize, but definitely look it up out there. Um, look up the video of Jerry Nadler shitting himself in a press conference. Now, it might not explicitly say that he shat himself, but just check out the awkward look and walk that he does on stage during this pants shitting. Um, you tell me. But Nadler's change of heart came. No, no, I'm sorry here. House, uh, the House Judi Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler initially blocked Gates's request, but relented a short time later, just like his sphincter relented in his pants that one time. Nadler's change of heart came after what Gates described as consultation with majority staff. And that's a really nifty little video or audio clip to listen into is that uh, right after Gates brings this up, um, everyone behind Nadler, no pun intended, shits their pants and starts uh, whispering in his ear as to what to do because they're just all panicking. But after a while, they came up with nothing, so they had to admit it. 
And um, now that it's admitted, they they say, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee uh, content from files from and copies from the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, Gates said. And now they responded without objection. So uh, Gates celebrated by posting a video clip of the exchange on Twitter where he wrote, subpoena Hunter Biden. Yes, they absolutely should. It's unclear if the material entered into the record includes the many sexually explicit photos and videos stored on the laptop, and a Gates spokesman didn't respond to an email inquiry. The lurid images include a raunchy 12-minute, and we just talked about this in the last article, but a 12-minute video clip that appears to show President Biden's son smoking crack while engaged in a sex act with an unidentified woman of, of unidentified age. And then also earlier, Gates held up what appeared to be a small external hard drive. As he said, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee, the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, which I'm in possession of. At that time, Nadler said, I'm not, and then paused to confer with an aide during which another lawmaker said, there's no objection to that. Nadler then announced, I will object pending further investigation. Now, Gates shot back asking, what's the basis of that objection? And Nadler said in response, it's a unanimous consent request and I object pending further investigation. It may very well be entered into the record after we have a chance to look at it further, Nadler said. Now, Gates, who's also under investigation for alleged sex trafficking of a 17-year-old girl, which he's denied as a witch hunt, and then asked for and got permission to enter into the record a copy of of the receipt issued by the repair shop where the MacBook Pro computer was dropped off in April 2019. But let's go back here. Now, I remember this story from a few months ago. Gates was being accused of all this craziness um, and his family um, of this sex trafficking of this 17-year-old girl. And um, that really sounds like, hmm, much of the other bullshit our intelligence agencies and the DNC have come up with in the past, isn't it? All these sexual um, scandals? Yeah, that sounds a lot like intelligence. But let's move on. Mac Isaac, who's the shop owner, uh, John Paul Mac Isaac, let's be, let's be specific here, is legally blind and has said that he can't identify whomever left the water-damaged laptop with him. And never retrieved it. Wow. I wonder if that was on purpose. That they went to a place where they couldn't be identified to drop this off because they knew that the guy was blind. Well, we may find out. Now, Mac Isaac later turned over its contents to former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And we went over that last article too. Who arranged to share them with the Post in October 2020. Leading to a blockbuster series of exclusive reports. In an appearance last year on... Uh, CBS's Sunday morning, Hunter Biden said that the laptop left at the shop certainly may have been his, saying that there could be a laptop out there and that uh, that it was stolen from him. Uh, now, it could be, he, Hunter also claimed, that I was hacked. It could be that it was Russian intelligence. Sure it was. Now, earlier this month, Mac Isaac told The Post, that he's facing bankruptcy since getting a lot of death threats and harassment that forced him to close down his shop and flee to Colorado for nearly a year. And 
you figure if you do the right thing, like this poor person, Mac Isaac, this blind guy who just had this necronomicon, if you will, just dropped into his lap, uh, that now he suffers for it. But um, during Tuesday's hearing, Gates repeatedly grilled uh, Vondren about the whereabouts of the laptop, and this is what we were talking about before, folks, and that the FBI had done what the FBI had done with it, in which Vondra had said he didn't know. Now, so you will commit, and this is, uh, I think, Gates's uh, quote, yes, so you will commit to give us a briefing as the assistant director of FBI cyber as to where the laptop is, whether or not it's a point of vulnerability, whether or not the American people should wonder whether or not the first family is compromised. And Vondren said, sir, I'd be happy to take your request back to our office. And also Tuesday, Gates announced he would introduce legislation called the Spook Who Cried Wolf Resolution to indefinitely bar security clearances for 51 former U.S. intelligence officials who served what he called a letter decrying the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation. In their public statement dated uh, October 19th of 2020, the ex-officials, including five former CIA directors or acting directors, said they didn't know if the material on the laptop was genuine, but said its release weeks before the presidential election had all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. So they didn't exactly say it, folks, right? But it was repeated in the media, mockingbirded over and over and over again. But I like that, Bill. Uh, legislation, Spook Who Cried Wolf Res- Resolution. What a wonderful title. Going after those 51 former U.S. intelligence officials. So, but let's move on to more laptop and Hunter Biden bullshit. This one from the Daily Mail. Exclusive. Life's a beach. Hunter Biden's bikini-clad wife, Melissa Cohen, who's 35, is spotted frolicking in the ocean with buff male pal as she continues to live it up in Rio de Janeiro while her husband faces the tax probe. Now, the outlines for this one include Cohen was spotted on the Brazilian beach in a red string bikini on Saturday. Ooh. She was joined by two male pals as she splashed in the ocean and lounged on the sand. The South African-born activist showed off her toned figure in a string bikini and cheeky bottoms opting to leave her blonde hair loose around her shoulders. Oh, isn't that nice? She and her pals were seen buying fresh coconut drinks to sip on, and when she had enough time in the sun, she showered the sand and the salt water off her body before leaving. The trio stopped uh, to shop for jewelry on the beach, with Cohen trying on a necklace, and then also Cohen and her friends were also photographed with Secret Service agents and suitcases. It's unclear if they were leaving Rio de Janeiro, or moving locations. Now, Cohen traveled to Rio de Janeiro last week to attend the Orphaned Starfish Foundation's benefit on Thursday. Her getaway comes amid her husband's tax probe, which is picking up speed in his home state of Delaware. Prosecutors have been interviewing associates and wit- uh, yes, inter- associates and witnesses about his foreign business dealings. Now, 
this doesn't seem like much of a bombshell story, folks, right? Um, that Hunter Biden's wife, Melissa Cohen, is here soaking up the sun in a red bikini in Rio de Janeiro with two other dudes. You know, just a, a married woman of 35 and child, uh, mother, you know, of one, I believe, uh, just running around with two other bros and, you know, jumping in the ocean with them. That happens all the fucking time, doesn't it? Not about you. But the reason why I wanted to bring this up is that that organization that was mentioned up above, what was that organization? The Orphan Starfish Foundation? What the hell is that all about? What the hell is she doing down there being a part of it? Well, let's talk about that. Cohen, it says here in the article, traveled to Rio de Janeiro last week to attend the Orphan Starfish Foundation's benefit. For the LGBTQ plus community... Orphans, indigenous children, and this is the best one, folks, and victims of trafficking and abuse. Now, for those of you that have been paying attention the past couple months here at The New Prisoners, we've been constantly citing connections and making connections between various stories, organizations, and powerful figures uh, around the world to these satanic pedophile cults um, that abuse children. And um, it isn't very settling, I should say, to discover that there's a connection now between Hunter Biden's wife, and Hunter Biden, of course, and a charity set up to help victims of trafficking and abuse. And why is that? Well, let's move on to the next article, and it'll explain. This one from CNN, Meet the Magician, Saving Children from Life on the Streets. Now, this is from Medellin, Colombia. Andy Stein shifts on the balls of his feet, leans against a wooden railing, and fidgets. In front of him, a CNN cameraman readjusts the light stand. Behind him, a group of children calls out from a distance, Tio Mago. Stein turns. They're calling me Uncle Magician, he says with a gleam. We really do need to hurry. I have to do the magic show before we leave. I promise them. The interview ends a few minutes later, and Stein 52 bonds up the brick steps of the Senderos de Paz, a home for Colombian children ranging from ages 3 to 10. With the same useful, youthful energy as the dozens of tiny audience members awaiting the show. Stein's magic tricks are rudimentary and well-worn. Nevertheless, they still delight. The children crowd to, to the front, eager to see how they're done. Magic is a tool, says Stein. It's a way to make the children feel like they have the ability to do anything in the world. Now, it gives a description here of who Mr. Stein is. It says, a long way from Manhattan. For Stein, it was a long trip to reach Senderas, and not just in terms of airline miles. Perched above a little village with, with picturesque views overlooking downtown Medellin. This is about as far away as you can get from the hustle surrounding the midtown Manhattan office where Stein once worked. I'm a recovering banker, he confides. 
But my wife says, you never fully recover. Now, you could also said the same thing about pedophiles, Andy. And I'm not accusing, but I'm just saying. Former Wall Street banker here says in the description of the photo, former Wall Street banker Andy Stein set up the Orphaned Starfish Foundation, which teaches IT skills to kids in orphanages around the world. For 25 years, Stein applied his trade in the banking industry, helping finance scores of infrastructure projects across Latin America and Asia. I wonder if he made any shady connections during those times. I don't know. Well, goes on a quote. I was one of the top flyers in the United States on Continental Airlines, he says. I was traveling incessantly. So I decided to go to every country, every country manager and say that if you wanted to come and pitch business, you had to find me an orphanage. Two hours in the schedule and let me play with some kids. That was going to be my salvation for these trips. End quote. But it was a concert, uh, conservation. Uh, I'm sorry. It was a conversation he had with a Catholic nun. Remember what Jordan Maxwell said about the Catholics here last week at an orphanage in Chile that changed everything. She said, I'm not sure if you know what happens here, but at the age of 18 by law, these girls are considered adults and they have to leave our little home. And a hundred percent of these girls, this is her quote, this is the nun's quote, and a hundred percent of these girls become prostitutes or live on the streets. Now, where did they get those skills beforehand? I don't know. Stein says he and the nuns sat down and determined education and jobs and job training would be the pathways to helping provide opportunities to children once they aged out of the system. He then returned home to New York and convinced one of his top clients, a law firm, to file the paperwork necessary to create a charity. He then went to family and friends and raised about $40,000 to build a state-of-the-art computer center in the orphanage. Six months later, I went back and it was magic, says Stein. The younger kids became top of their class. The older kids learned how to use Microsoft Office. So they learned how to use the keyboard. They had a skill. Now, under the quote, life always gives you second chances, it says today the Orphan Starfish Foundation has 50 computer centers in 25 countries around the world, helping over 10,000 children who are victims of abuse, trafficking, or poverty. Monica Morales is one of them, now 21. Her parents had both been murdered by guerrilla fighters in northern Colombia before her fifth birthday. By the time Morales turned 11, she says, she'd been abused by several people entrusted with her care, including a family friend who reportedly sold her off to other families that wanted children. She says, the husbands would abuse me sexually and I was mistreated physically and verbally, says Morales. 
Eventually, Morales was brought to Casa de la China, a home for abused girls in Medellin, which works with the Orphan Starfish Foundation. There, things finally began to change. I started to study and to dance and to do things I never thought I would be able to do, says Morales. Recently, the foundation provided Morales with a scholarship to study fashion design at a local university. That's the best thing to get into if you want to stop trafficking and abuse. You want to get into fashion. God fucking damn it. All right. And her designs are being featured on the catwalks in Medellin. Her dream is to be a great fashion designer, a great dancer, a great person, and help to build more dreams for others, she says. Morales is quick to offer her appreciation to the man who started the Orphan Starfish Foundation. He's like a father, says Morales. Life always gives you second chances, and that's what this is. A father to some, a magician to others. But Stein says there's no secret or sleight of hand in the work that he does. It just comes down to caring. He says, when I go back and I talk to my old friends in banking, people ask if I miss the toys. If I miss the big houses, <laughs> I live in a 600-foot square apartment in Astoria, Queens, and I tell them I don't miss it, really at all. I have the very incredible feeling of knowing what I was put here to do and the ability to do it. There is a magic in the world. You can, with just a little bit, make more of a difference than you can possibly imagine. Wow. Now that sounds inspirational uplifting even. Is it though? Well, because the Orphan Starfish Foundation is listed on the Tides Foundation's website as a partner. It has in the description that the Orphan Starfish Foundation is dedicated to helping orphans, victims of abuse, victims of trafficking, and at-risk youth break their cycles of abuse and poverty through their computer-based education, job training, and job placement assistance. Since our beginning in 20, uh, um, 2001, orphan starfish programs address the challenges facing orphans, victims of abuse, and at-risk youth by providing them with technology training. OSF funds the construction and operation of vocational training facilities, including funding for furnishings, purchasing required equipment, teacher salaries, job placement services, and scholarships for higher education. Oh, man, that involves a bunch of different creeps from a bunch of different industries, doesn't it? And the OSF also provides English language software and classes, a life skills program, scholarships, and helps with job placement whenever possible. So, and under issue areas listed here on the Tides Foundation, it says that their uh, issues are equality and human rights. Now, the reason why I bring up Tides is, well, the Tides Foundation is linked to Mr. George Soros, who we're going to talk about now, and that's because Russia has accused Hunter Biden, remember how we started this story, the CDC, how we began this podcast, and George Soros for funding Pentagon's biological program in Ukraine. It all comes together now, doesn't it, folks? Now, this is from Addison Wilson over at the True Defender, and um, it states, Hunter's firm Rosemont Seneca gave money to the companies behind the Ukrainian biolabs. Now, those biolabs, folks, if you want more information on those, you can look to uh, prior episodes here because we've been covering them um, and even the receipts of them, which they go into here, which is nice. But the U.S. State Department confessed that there were dangerous U.S.-funded biolabs in Ukraine. 
But on Wednesday, the Biden regime backtracked and insisted that there weren't U.S.-funded biolabs in Ukraine. So this is dated back um, oh, well, from one minute ago when I when I saved it today. So yeah, and uh, the it says for what is their confusion? Moreover, some documents prove the U.S. funding of the biological laboratories in Ukraine. It is because Hunter's firm, Rosemont Seneca, funded the companies involved in the building. Infowars has shared an article explaining the ties between Hunter Biden and uh, Metabiota Company, and Rosemont Seneca provided capital Metabiota, um, as noted on the firm's website in 2014. There's also a number of documents on the Wayback Machine uh, showing the DOD invested in the creation of biolabs in Ukraine with the help of firm Black and Veatch. Now it says, check this out, and has uh, one of the receipts that we went through on uh, prior episodes here of the New Prisoners. Now, it goes down by saying that today, Metabiota, the pioneer in epidemic risk modeling, announced it has been awarded a subcontract from Black and Veatch, or BNV, to support the U.S. Defense Threat Reduction Agency, or DTRA's, Cooperative Biological Engagement Program, or CBEP. Yeah, just like we talked about. In Iraq, under the Biological Threat Reduction Integrating Contract, or BTRIC. So they were, they were up to these nefarious things, and all of the other regime change wars. Go fucking figure. Metabiota has also partnered with BNV or Black and Veatch on DTRA's recently awarded Cooperative Threat Reduction Integrating Contract or the CTRIC. Uh, three, <laughs> so there's three of them, uh, with an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity or ID uh, slash IQ contract ceiling of. $970 million. Hmm. I wonder why they're not completely transparent. Well, Russia said on Thursday that the government, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, said that Rosemont Seneca invest in, Investment Fund, led by Hunter Biden, the son of U.S. President Joe Biden, is funding the Pentagon's military biological program in Ukraine. And that was reported by The Telegraph. And that U.S. President Joe Biden must explain his son Hunter's involvement in the operation of biological laboratories in Ukraine. Russia's state Duma speaker, uh, Vladislav Volodin, uh, I'm going to take a crack at it, but that's the best you're going to get, folks, uh, said on Thursday on his Telegram channel, uh, TASS reported. Now, the incoming materials, and this is a quote, the incoming materials allow us to trace the scheme of interaction between U.S. government agencies and Ukrainian biological objects. Attention is drawn to the involvement in the financing of those of these activities of structures close to the current U.S. leadership, in particular, the Rosemont Seneca Investment Fund, which is headed by Hunter Biden. And this is a quote from Lieutenant General Igor Kurilov head of the Radiation, Chemical, and Biological Defense Forces of the Russian Armed Forces. The Pentagon program is also financially supported by the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, 
the George Soros Foundation, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Krilov said. Krilov claimed that one of the scientific curators of the Pentagon's military biological program in Ukraine was the Los Alamos Nuclear Center, which developed the first American atomic bomb. So going back to that change that John Henry and I were talking about after the world wars there, what a lovely article pointing out that George Soros um, and his foundation was involved in this too. Well, let's take a look at what uh, is being claimed that Soros has been involved in in Ukraine, shall we? So with this is from Survival Magazine, and uh, this is with corrupt politicians and a corrupt media. How do we know what is best for the U.S. concerning Ukraine? Now, it's a great article, folks, and they go into many different people's involvement in Ukraine that we have talked about over the past couple of weeks, such as John Kerry and Shitcon Mitt Romney and the Clintons, of course, because why wouldn't they be involved in everything? Um, our lying ass, drunken fucking uh, crypt keeper, uh, Nancy Pelosi and George Soros. Here we go. Creepy George. I like that. Creepy George Soros has been connected to Ukraine for a very long time. He was interviewed by 60 Minutes years ago, and at the time, he was already involved in Ukraine. In this infamous interview, Soros claimed to have no shame in turning in fellow Jews to the Nazis in World War II in Hungary. The Nazis then stole the booty from the Jews, and Soros claimed that if he didn't do it, someone else would. This is the man many believe is behind today's modern corrupt Democratic Party. I solely agree. Totally agree. We reported in early October that Obama's state and justice departments, and this is uh, Survival Magazine reporting here, uh, were assisting George Soros in his attempt to control Ukraine. This is shocking because Soros was reportedly behind the airport protests after President Trump's election. A week before that, Soros was reportedly behind 50 groups involved in the women's protests the day after the inauguration. Before that, Soros was connected to the groups demanding election recounts. (laughs) Oh, every single story today, folks, every single story from election fraud to this one, they're all connected. (laughs) Okay. And demanding election recounts after the November 8th election and Soros money was funding more protests during those efforts. And DC leaks released information showing that Soros funded Black Lives Matter protests across the country. Now, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York and President Trump's attorney, shared in recent interviews that the corruption in Ukraine doesn't stop with the Bidens. It also involves George Soros. And whatever Soros was involved uh, with Ukraine, it was big enough that Soros got, uh, I'm sorry, that it says whatever Soros was involved with Ukraine. It was big enough that Soros got himself involved in the Russia collusion sham investigation after President Trump's election, the Epic Times has reported. Now, it says here that uh, billionaire George Soros and a group of wealthy donors from New York and California have paid $50 million to sustain an ongoing private Russia investigation conducted by former British spy Christopher Steele research firm, Fusion GPS, 
and a former staffer for Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. You know, the one that had the driver for years that was uh, connected to the Chinese government that was a spy. Yeah, (laughs) the revelation is part of the final report on Russian interference in the 2016 election released on April 27th by the House Intelligence Committee. The report concluded that there is no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. A footnote in the report states that Daniel Jones, the former Feinstein staffer who runs the Penn Quarter Group, or PQG, told the FBI in March of 2017 that he is working on a project with Fusion GPS that was being funded by 7 to 10 wealthy donors located primarily in New York and California who provided approximately $50 million. All throughout these things, these donations, folks, coming from these wealthy donors being used and bullshit like this. So that's when I see people paying like $10,000, you know, for a per head to go to the Orphan Starfish Foundation to supposedly save these kids. I'm not really buying it. But maybe they're legit. Who knows? One thing that we know that Soros might want to keep hidden is that there are reports that he wanted to take over the oil and gas industry in Ukraine. Well, that's exactly as we've been saying, that all of this bullshit has been over controlling the energy market. It says here, liberal megadonor George Soros made some big uh, bets during the last U.S. presidential election. One that was Hillary Clinton would win the presidency. Another was that he could reshape Ukraine's government to his liking and that his business empire might find fertile ground in that former uh, Soviet state. So when Donald Trump's improbable march to the White House picked up steam in the spring of 2016, Team Soros marched to the top of the State Department to protect some of the investments according to newly released department memos, providing a rare glimpse into the Democratic donors' extraordinary access to the Obama administration. And then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland, who recently made press in uh, disclosing to Marco Rubio under testimony that there are indeed U.S.-funded fucking biolabs there, in Ukraine, that then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland received repeated calls, emails, and meeting requests from Soros, according to the memos obtained under the Freedom of Information Act by the conservative group Citizens United. Now, likewise, Soros set out a bold vision in an internal 2014 memo for his Open Society Foundation to help root out corruption in Ukraine and build a civil society after the uh, Maidan revolution ousted the country's Russia-friendly president. Oh, that regime change war just was supposed to work out in his favor, and then Trump got in there. Oh, well, it worked out that the U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ, oh, love those guys, don't we? Uh, Officials to leverage the so-called kleptocracy initiative to fight corruption. The initiative, the initiative enabled the DOJ to prosecute or seek asset forfeitures from foreigners suspected of corruption, even if the crimes don't technically occur on U.S. soil. Well, that sounds familiar too, that they're just able to, you know, just seize all your assets if they don't like you. 
Where have we seen that recently? Couldn't have been in Canada, right? Wow. Or, <laughs> or what they're trying to do with our current digital currency that's going to be in place in a few fucking months, probably. But it goes on to say such initiatives are noble in principle. But in Ukraine, some targets had political and business implications as well. You don't fucking say. For example, one DOG investigation in 2014 targeted Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Firtash. He and Soros both have significant energy interests in Europe and rival plans to rebuild Ukraine. So they were in competition for which oligarch was going to rule over in Ukraine there. And after Furtash's indictment, <laughs> Soros's business announced plans to invest $1 billion. Put your pinky up, folks. Pinky up like Dr. Evil. Soros business announced plans to invest $1 billion in Ukraine. And since then, significant problems have arisen with the DOJ's case. Oh, you don't say. Thwarting efforts to extradite Furtash to the U.S. for trial. And when Ukraine's general prosecutor sought to investigate one of the country's nonprofits, partially funded by Soros during 2016, the State Department pressured Ukrainian officials to drop the fucking case. Department of Justice. Our Department of Justice. Mm. The last piece by Solomon, that's, I believe, John Solomon uh, there too, of just the news, uh, is likely uh, what Rudy has alluded to in his comments about Soros in Ukraine. The Obama State Department intervened in Ukraine and stopped the case uh, against Soros. And based on Rudy's comments, it is likely, likely that he has support um, for Obama's State Department actions. <clears throat> we also know that the DOJ went too far with Furtash. Now, this is from the Daily Caller reporting here in this article um, on uh, Survival Magazine that the ink was still drying on special counsel Robert Mueller's appointment papers when his chief deputy, the famously aggressive and occasionally controversial prosecutor Andrew Weissman, made a bold but secret overture in early June of 2017. Weissman quietly reached out to the American lawyers for Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Firtash with a tempting offer. Give us some dirt on Donald Trump in the Russia case. And Team Mueller might make his 2014 U.S. criminal charges go away. Oh, wow. So they tried to pin things on President Trump or gather dirt on him, our DOJ, in exchange for letting this oligarch off who was set up by Soros in the first place in the DOJ. Now, I got to hand it to this, this oligarch, uh, because we'll get to that in a second, but it says, uh, Weissman is anything but occasionally controversial. Attorney uh, Sidney Powell, uh, famous for her Kraken quotes now, uh, was on the Mark Levin show in January and discussed dirty cops and attorneys Robert Mueller and Andrew Weissman for their years overseeing the Enron and Arthur Anderson cases. Yeah, no corruption there either. Their actions were corrupt and criminal and cost the jobs, savings, and careers of more than 85,000 individuals in Anderson and Enron. A shocking piece of information from The Hill then noted that a foreign national brought Mueller and Weissman's illegal actions to a foreign court 
And the foreign court listened and responded accordingly. And according to The Hill reporting, uh, remarkably, Furtash has turned down Weissman's plea uh, for o- and overtures even through the oligarch, even though the oligarch has been trapped in Aust- Austria. <laughs> Let me read that again. Remarkably, Furtash turned down Weissman's plea overtures even though the oligarch has been trapped in Austria for five years. Well, that sounds like Julian Assange, too. So, but fighting extradition on U.S. charges in Chicago. So, Furtash, I'm, I'm you know, replying to here, not, uh, not uh, Julian Assange, but Furtash apparently is fighting extradition on U.S. charges in Chicago, alleging that he engaged in bribery and corruption in India. Okay. Related to a U.S. aerospace deal. Now, he denies the charges, of course, because they're probably all bullshit. But the oligarch's defense team uh, told uh, me that Furtash rejected the deal because he didn't have credible information or evidence on the topics Wiseman outlined. So he didn't have any dirt. There wasn't anything real to give them on Trump. So he declined the deal. And now he's still stuck in Austria, which has got to be great because, I mean, they forced the vaccine on everybody there. But now, as Furtash escalates his fight to avoid, uh, to avoid extradition, the Weissman Overture is being offered to an Austrian court as potential defense evidence that the DOJ's prosecution is flawed by bogus evidence and political motivations. Wow. This leads us to the question, it says in the article, how much corruption is there lying in Ukraine involving Obama, the Bidens, John Kerry, the Clintons, Speaker Pelosi, Mitt Romney, and George Soros? And they conclude, the answer is most likely a lot. And I'd fucking agree with that. Wow. Now, if you've been saying for the past several years that the election being stolen or that all this shit going on with COVID and the biolab leaks, shit that nature and Wuhan and biolabs even being in Ukraine as a recent, um, you are deemed to be by our own government, people in our own government, even um, coming out to state that you are an extremist, that you are a terrorist of sorts. Well, let's take a look at how uh, the current administration is dealing with terrorism Oh, they're letting them off the hook. This according to the DC Patriot. Extremist Biden removed from terror watch list launch attacks on Saudi, uh, on Saudi oil facilities. <laughs> A group of Iranian-backed extremists, which President Joe Biden recently removed from the official FTO or Foreign Terrorist Organization list, have claimed credit for a large attack on Saudi energy facilities on late Friday. Wow. I wonder if they were released to game the energy market a little bit more. That sounds plausible. Now, this is a quote. At 1755, Saudi Aramco's bulk plant in Jeddah was targeted with an act of aggression, the early indications of which suggest that it was targeted by the terrorist Iran-backed Houthi militia, the Saudi press agency said in a statement. A fire erupted in two tanks in the oil facility. The fire was controlled and no injuries or loss of life were recorded. This hostile escalation targets oil facilities 
and aims to undermine energy security and the backbone of global economy. And they're not wrong there. Just why it's happening, we don't know. These hostile attacks had no impact or repercussions in any way, shape, or form on public life in Jeddah City, end quote. Now, the attack came on the verge of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix this weekend, which is still scheduled to continue, and the Houthi rebels later claimed responsibility in a video for the attacks, saying that they did several attacks with drones and ballistic missiles in Saudi Arabia, including an Aramco installation in Jeddah, and vital installations in in, uh, Riyadh. Now, I have here a couple uh, tweets. This one from Joe Trusman says, The Houthis struck an Aramco facility in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, a while ago. The KSA's foreign ministry signaled earlier this week that Houthi attacks were taking a toll on the production of oil. And today's attack will likely exacerbate the problem. Oh, Sounds like a plan to exacerbate the problem, doesn't it? All that we've been seeing with this shit lately, folks. And another one from Joe Truisman here. Uh, Houthi rebels have struck an Aramco oil facility in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. This is the third week in a row where the Iran-backed organization has attacked Saudi energy facilities as a part of an effort to force KSA to stop prohibiting the entry of fuel into Yemen. Wow. Go fucking figure there. The regime change war that we had a lot to do with over in Yemen that's causing starvation and, um, that? oh yeah, modern day slavery to occur over there. Yeah, the, the Saudis aren't really treating the Yemenites or Yemenis or whatever you want to call them uh, very well. And uh, they're also blocking uh, the imports of oil into there. So it's all part of this big scheme uh, to uh, have people think that they're probably doing the right thing. These useful idiots and these Iran-backed Houthi militia or outright paid by our, our intelligence agencies or other intelligence agencies around the world to do this, folks. But uh, it looks like that they're, they're getting these people to do their bidding and it's resulting in higher energy costs. It seems like everything the fucking administration does is to support higher energy costs, doesn't it? What could that be for? What reason could that be for? Oh, is it because that uh, people like John Kerry make billions of dollars uh, in the future off of alternative energy projects like uh, the, um, let's see, the solar panels made by slaves that we reported on months ago? Yes, those those kind of things. So now this is one is uh, from Hassan uh, Sajwani. It's it's showing huge columns of fire arise from the Ramco facilities that came under attack by the Houthi terrorists today, um, and this is also from the Associated Press, which reports that meanwhile Saudi uh, Saudi state TV also acknowledged attacks in one town targeting water tanks that damaged vehicles and homes. Another attack targeted an electrical substation in an area of southwestern Saudi Arabia near the Yemeni border. And that the North uh, Jeddah bulk plant uh, stores diesel, gasoline, and jet fuel for use in Jeddah, the kingdom's second largest city. It accounts for over a quarter of all of Saudi Arabia's supplies and also supplies fuel crucial to running a regional uh, desalination plant. And that the Houthis have twice targeted the North Jeddah plant with cruise missiles. One attack came in November 2020. The last came on Sunday as a part of a wider barrage by the Houthis. 
Now, there's also a lot of misattribution that comes with these terrorist attacks too, making it seem like it's one group, but it's really a not. So I'd pay attention to that too. But uh, this just seems like a massive setup in order to impact the uh, energy market. Now, what could be possibly tied into the energy market? Well, Russia's ruble, because it's rebounded. <laughs> Remember how we were kind of you know, saying that it's, it's plausible, if not highly plausible, that this entire thing going on between Ukraine and Russia is just a work. It's just a ruse. It's just a hoax to control, to have a f- hands of a few, like the World Economic Forum and all their fucking cronies, um, impact or control the energy market of the world. Well, we thought here in the West that the sanctions against Russia impacting their currency was something that's going to be something to be contended with here. And uh, that we were going to be able to, um, you know, stop all of this by impacting their their currency. Well, no, Russia's ruble has rebounded, and that's raising questions of sanctions impact. Well, the Russian ruble by Wednesday, it says here, and this is from the Epic Times, um, that by Wednesday had bounced back from the fall it took after the U.S. and European allies moved to bury the Russian economy under thousands of new sanctions over its invasion of Ukraine, and President. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has resorted to extreme financial measures to blunt the West's penalties and inflate his currency. While the West has imposed unprecedented levels of sanctions against the Russian economy, Russia's central bank has jacked up interest rates to 20%. Hmm. Where ours was just raised here a couple weeks ago, I wonder if that has anything to do with our currency. Hmm. (laughs) And the Kremlin has imposed strict capital controls on those wishing to exchange their rubles for dollars or euros. It's a monetary defense Putin may not be able to sustain as a long-term as long-term sanctions weigh down the Russian economy, but the ruble's recovery could be a sign that the sanctions in their current form are not working as powerfully as Ukraine's allies counted on when it comes to pressuring Putin to pull his troops from Ukraine. It also could be a sign that Russia's efforts to artificially prop up its currency are working by leveraging its oil and gas sector. Now, the ruble was trading at roughly 85 uh, to the US dollar, roughly where it was before Russia started its invasion a month ago. The ruble had fallen as low as roughly 150 to the dollar on March 7th when news emerged that Biden, that the Biden administration would ban U.S. imports of Russian oil and gas. And speaking to Norway's parliament on Wednesday, Ukraine's president urged Western allies to inflict still greater financial pain on Russia. Yeah, keep doing it, folks. We want it to happen, he says. <laughs> I wonder why. The only means of, of urging Russia to look for peace are sanctions. And that's a quote from uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, and he said that in a video message from his besieged country. And he also adds, the stronger the sanctions packages are going to be, the faster we'll bring back peace. Yeah, fucking right. Now, increasingly, European nations' purchases of Russian oil and natural gas are coming under scrutiny as a loophole and lifeline for the Russian economy. Don't forget them selling it to China, folks. For Russia... Everything is about their energy revenues. It's half of their federal budget. It's the thing that props up Putin's regime and the war, said Tanya Babina, an economist at Columbia University who was born in Ukraine. 
Babina is currently working with a group of 200 Ukrainian economists to more accurately document how effective the West's sanctions are in stymieing Putin's war-making capabilities. The ruble has also risen amid reports that the Kremlin has been more open to ceasefire talks with Ukraine, and the U.S. and Western officials have expressed skepticism about Russia's announcement that it would dial back operations. President Joe Biden promoted the success of the sanctions, some of the toughest ever imposed on a nation, while he was in Poland last week. The ruble almost is immediately reduced to rubble, Biden said. (laughs) I'm sorry, I have to laugh. Somebody just feeds him that line. Just be like, ruble, rubble. And that'll that'll get him. Everybody's going to believe you. Oh, man. Now, sanctions on Russian financial institutions and companies on trade and on Putin's power brokers were crushing the country's economic growth, growth and prompting hundreds of international companies to stop doing business there, Biden noted. Russian efforts to counter these, those sanctions by propping up the ruble can only go so far. Now, Russia's central bank cannot keep raising interest rates because doing so will eventually choke off credit to businesses and borrowers. Ooh, that might be something to look forward to here because it seems like everything they try and do there ends up happening here. And you have to ask, is that by design, folks? And I'll get to that in a second. At some point, individuals and businesses will develop ways to go around finance, uh, or go around Russia's capital controls by moving money in smaller amounts. As the penalties depress the Russian economy, economists say that will eventually weigh down the ruble. And without these efforts, Russia's currency would almost certainly be weaker. But Russia's oil and gas exports have continued to Europe, as well as to China and India. Those exports have acted as an economic floor for the Russian economy, which is dominated by the energy sector. In the European Union, a dependence on Russian gas for electricity and heating has made it significantly more difficult to turn off the spigot, which the Biden administration did when it banned the relatively small amount of petroleum that the U.S. imports from Russia. But it had a great impact, though, didn't it? Didn't it bring? Yeah, it it caused gas prices to, oh, fucking skyrocket here. Oh, that's great. Now, the U.S. has already banned imports of Russian oil and natural gas, and the United Kingdom will phase them out by the end of the year. However, these decisions will not have a meaningful impact unless and until the EU follows suit, wrote Benjamin Hilgenstock and Alina Rabakova, economists with the Institute of International Finance, in a report released Wednesday. Hilgenstock and Rabakova estimate that the if the EU... I'm sorry, if the EU, Britain, and the US were to ban Russian oil and gas, the Russian economy can contract more than 20% this year. That's compared with projections for up to a 15% contraction as sanctions stand now. So they can make it a hell of a lot worse around the world, folks, for energy. And we can get them there in Russia by another 5%. If I'm reading this right, I don't think it sounds like a great trade-off. Maybe they should stop. Now, knowing this, Putin has greatly leveraged Europe's dependence on its energy exports to its advantage. Yeah, because what the fuck does he have to lose? Nobody's marching into Russia. He's not going to lose a military conflict there with Ukraine because they don't got shit, folks. They're handing out uh, guns to random gang members and whoever the fuck else there. Um, But when it comes down to energy, 
he's got plenty of options and we're also, yeah, we're, we're eradicating all of our means of producing it ourselves too. So yeah, he's, he's got pretty good standing here. Uh, I'm thinking that uh, at any point, if he wants to just throw in the towel there in Ukraine, he'll be just, he'll be all right. But Putin has called for Russia's central bank to force foreign gas importers to purchase rubles and use them to pay state-owned gas suppliers Gazprom. Now, we reported on this, too, on the last couple of weeks, because, yes, um, he's going to raise the cost of the, or raise the value of the ruble through doing this, um, and also possibly a digital currency that could be implemented there, which would bring in a social credit system, which is something that everybody wants, apparently. And it's unclear whether Putin can make good on his threat, it, it claims, at the end. Now, the White House and economists have argued that the impact of sanctions takes time, weeks or months, uh, months for the full effect as industries shut down due to a lack of materials or capital or both. But the administration's critics say that the ruble's recovery shows that the White House needs to do more. And the ruble's rebound would seem to indicate that U.S. sanctions haven't effectively crippled Russia's economy, which is the price Putin should have to pay for this war. And that was a quote from Senator Pat Toomey uh, from Pennsylvania, who is also a shitcon and an asshole. So fuck him too and everything that he says. Uh, but also to give Ukraine a fighting chance because, of course, all the Republicans are standing for Ukraine because that's their duty, uh, not not to us, but to, to stand up for Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. must serve, uh, must sever, it says, Putin's revenue stream by cutting off Russian oil and gas sales globally. And Toomey said that in an email to the Associated Press. Now, also, Senator Sherrod Brown, chairman of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee, uh, Committee, said Wednesday that lawmakers are considering ways to expand the sanctions Biden recently imposed on members of the Russian parliament and probably widen that to other political players. They don't really get specific there, but I know that they just want to target their opposition all the time, so not really looking forward to that one if it goes down. Now, Brown, uh, who's corrupt as shit, and you can read it, Peter Schweitzer's uh, uh, chapter in his uh, one of his more recent books about that too about corruption, uh, but yeah, uh, Sherrod Browd from Ohio said that lawmakers are also are weighing more penalties against banks. Yeah, I want there to be a bunch of more legislation about how the government can fuck with banks. Yeah, it just seems like a great solution to everything. <laughs> oh God! Now Western leaders under Biden's encouragement, have embraced sanctions as their toughest weapon to try to compel Russia to reverse its invasion of Ukraine. Again, because they're not going to fuck with them militarily there. So what is going to happen? Oh, more harm here, it sounds like. But uh, it says here that reverse its invasion of Ukraine, which is not a member of NATO and not protected under that bloc's mutual defense policy. Now, some of the allies now acknowledge that their governments may need to Redouble financial punishment against Russia. Oh, great. More of it. That's always, always the solution. Oh, the shot doesn't work on old people? Give them 15 fucking more. Oh, yeah. British Prime Minister, who's also a piece of shit, Boris Johnson, and liar too, said Wednesday that the group of seven, which is uh, major industrial nations, should intensify sanctions with a rolling program until every single one of Putin's troops is out of Ukraine. Now, but a tougher ask for other European countries, such as Germany, which depend on Russia for vital natural gas and oil, the, e the EU overall gets 10% of its oil from Russia and more than one third 
of its natural gas. Many of those countries have pledged to wean themselves off that dependence, but not immediately. And they're going to wean themselves off of it too by uh, you know, rigging the, the, the market. And if European nations did move more quickly off Russian petroleum, it's stated here in the article, wrote analyst Charles, Charles Litchfield of the Atlantic Council. Oh, oh need we go any further? Um, yeah, look up, do, do some research in the Atlantic Council, folks. We're not going to spend too much time on that, but another connected, uh, and I think Soros-influenced uh, backer here in, in all of this, and all of this fuckery. Uh, says Charles Litch, uh, Litchfield of the Atlantic Council, a more comprehensive embargo from Europe would threaten Russia's current account surplus, suddenly making it more difficult to pay public sector salaries and wage war. He noted that such an outcome may be beyond the reach of Western consensus. Well, here's my consensus. Fuck you and the Atlantic Council. My God. All right. Now, besides oil skyrocketing, we've seen wheat do the same thing. Because rising wheat prices, according to WHSV3 here, who's working hard for you, uh, they're under uh, ABC, Fox, CBS, and my TV umbrella too, apparently. Ugh. Um, but yeah, rising wheat prices taking its toll on local bakeries. And this is from Harrisburg, Virginia. And I just wanted to briefly point this out too, because food prices across the country remain high due to inflation. And wheat prices in particular have risen over the last few months, which is taking a toll on local bakeries. It has affected us a lot. Most of our products have increased almost 50%. It has been like this for three months or more, said Bernice Rodriguez, owner of El Pazano uh, Panduria, Y Pastoleria in Harrisonburg. Yeah. <laughs> so from Harrisonburg, Virginia, uh, this owner is saying that it's affected them and causing their costs to go up more than 50%. Now, Rodriguez said that the wheat she buys used to be around 16 to $17 per 50 pounds. But she said the price is now up to $30 per 50 pounds. Holy shit. It's gone up about 50% all the way across the board, whether it's bread, flour, all-purpose, pastry, everything has, has had a really uh, large increase. Even non-wheat flours, like gluten-free substitutes. So even you celiacs as these people that think you're getting out of this shit, you're not either, have had a large increase as well. Um, and that was from Kat Vanlier, and that's the manager of Anita's Decadent Delights Bake Shop in Bridgewater. Now, both bakeries have had to take steps to adjust to the rising costs of the ingredients they need to make their products. It's been hard, quoted here, we've been trying to find a decent balance and trying to raise our prices to accommodate that, and then also losing out on a little bit of our profit margin as well to kind of balance that. It's been hard, Vanlier said. And El Paisano has also had to raise its prices to keep up with the rising costs and continue to purchase the quality ingredients it needs. And another quote, we want to continue using our same products, our same flowers, our same things. We don't want to change the quality of what we used to do uh, or, or that we use uh, to do our bread. So we just had to increase some of our prices, said Rodriguez. And Rodriguez said her customers have 
generally been pretty understanding about the increase in prices and she hasn't lost too much business. But another quote says, some people understand and know that the prices are not the same, but I do have to I do have some complaints that the prices are high, but most of the people understand that we cannot continue uh, the same prices that we used to. So this is all becoming normalized. All of our suffering, all of the inflation, all the loss of the power of our dollar, all of the paying more at the pump and paying more for a fucking bait good, that they're all normalizing it, that people aren't even complaining about it. And they don't even know what to attribute it to, because if you ask the current administration, they'll, they'll blame it on Donald Trump or they'll blame it on Putin. They, they'll take no responsibility for themselves as assholes. So, but to conclude this article, it says, Van Leer said that continued supply chain issues have also taken a toll on Anita's. She said they often have to travel around the state to get everything they need. And in a quote, it says that we've We've had to go on our days off and travel to Roanoke, Charlottesville, and Winchester to be able to remain stocked with sugars, bread flowers, and packaging. Both bakeries said another issue is that the cost of butter and margarine have, has also skyrocketed. Well, I'm sure all of the new um, green uh, New Deal types of policies concerning cows and milk and, and red meat are all going to just help with that, aren't they? No. They're all meant to make it worse. It's all meant to make it worse. Everything they do results in the opposite of their stated intent. The people that they tell you that they're trying to protect are the people that they harm. Sometimes those are children. Sometimes it's your stock price. Other times it's your cost at the pump. Other times it's your local bakery. But those effects, folks, are found worldwide. And this one here, to conclude this this week, before we get into my final point. From the Japan Times, highest wheat price rise in 14 years has, has consumers bracing for more expensive bread. Now, this is from Eric Johnson, who's a staff writer for the AP, I believe. And this is uh, saying that Japanese consumers are bracing for possible price hikes on price hikes on bread and wheat products in the coming months as the government's selling price for imported wheat was set to rise 17.3% beginning Friday. The increase in the price for wheat the government sells to, to private milling companies is the highest in nearly 14 years and 50% higher than 2020. It comes amid growing concerns about poor harvests in the countries that supply wheat to Japan and the effect of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which together account for 29% of the world's wheat exports on commodity prices and availability worldwide. Well, who are the other suppliers? Well, let's find out. The wheat purchase price is determined every six months by the Agricultural Ministry. And since September, the last time the purchase uh, price was set, the U.S. and Canada have seen a poor wheat crop yield following the hot, dry summers in 2021. A weakening yen and supply disruptions due to export restrictions on Russia due to the war have also led to higher wheat prices worldwide. Yes, folks, the U.S. and Canada, we're responsible for this. We're tied to this too. Now, you can blame it, on uh, hot, dry summers in 2021, 
but aren't the sanctions that we're imposing causing the supply chain problem with Russia? So you're telling me the people responsible for the weed industry, just like the oil industry, are rigging this? You don't say. According to the Agricultural Ministry, the article claims, uh, domestic demand for wheat between 2016 and 2020 amounted to about 5.6 million tons annually on average. About 90% or 4.88 million tons came from abroad, including 2.3 million tons from the U.S., which accounts to about 46.9% of what they import, along with 1.63 million tons from Canada, which accounts for 36.5%. And 820,000 tons from Australia, which is 16.2%. The rest comes mostly from domestic sources. Now, virtually none comes from Russia or Ukraine, but the loss of exports from those two countries could have a severe knock on effect for Japan. Wow. Now, it says five varieties are the target of the purchase price hike. They include three American varieties, which is Dark Northern Spring. Hard Red Winter, and Western White, and the Western Red Spring Variety from Canada, and Standard White from Australia. Dark Northern Spring is used in commercially produced bread, Chinese noodles, and uh, gyoza, which are fried dumplings, as is Hard Red Winter. Western White is used for flour, for confectionaries, and for tempura flour, and Western Red Spring is used by bread makers while standard white is used for udon, which are thick noodles. The average price of the above five varieties will be raised to 72,530 yen per ton during the April-September April period. That's the second highest level since 2007, when the price rose to about 76,030 yen uh, per ton from the six-month period after October of 2008, amid a worldwide rise in commodity prices. I wonder why that happened. The government's purchase price for September 2021 to the end of March had been 61,820 yen per ton. The wheat price for the six-month period beginning in September 2021 increased by 19%. So this has been on the rise for a while, folks. And the result has been a rise in prices for bread. In February, a loaf of bread was 7% more expensive compared to the same price last year. The Agriculture Ministry uh, estimates that the price of cake flour will go up by 4.4% and bread will see another 1.5% rise due to the April wheat hike. So, as we're experiencing the higher prices at the pump, as we're experiencing higher prices for food globally, and as everyone in our government seemingly uh, eggs this on, well, we could just look to the Republicans to solve all that coming up here in our midterm elections, can't we? No. No, we can't. Because here's why. Because they're just as fucking corrupt too, folks. I have here for Breitbart hypocrisy. Republican Dr. Oz has lavish fundraiser with Clinton friend and Epstein associate after attacking opponent for taking money from Dems. Well, if you wanted this week's six, uh, uh, six Degrees to Pedophilia, there's one for you. And we weren't expecting Dr. Oz in that pool, but I guess we're getting it, folks. It says here, Dr. Mamet Oz, the celebrity doctor running as a Republican in Pennsylvania's 2020, 
to a U.S. Senate race is accused of being a hypocrite after a reportedly lavish $250,000 ahead fundraiser. Let me say that again. $250,000 fucking dollars ahead fundraiser with a Clinton friend and Epstein associate when he has attacked his most prominent opponent, David McCormick, for taking money from Democrats. Now, it says in the article, Dr. Oz in the past has accused McCormick of taking money from Clinton-loving Democrats while trying to appear, I'm sorry, as a strong Republican. However, he had a fundraiser costing a quarter of a million dollars per head with Pepe Fanjul, a friend of Bill Clinton. Of course, of course, it would be a guy named Pepe. If you remember the old skunk from the Looney Tunes, folks, <laughs> it would be a guy named Pepe hanging out with Bill Clinton trying to sleep with a bunch of young girls on Epstein's Island, of whom, of whom both we're in Jeffrey Epstein's black book of contacts, according to the Daily Mail. The fundraiser was at Fanjul's farm in Palm Beach. Now, Fanjul has been a prominent Republican donor, but has also been cozy with the Clinton family for decades. And last year, Bill Clinton was seen boarding a yacht with the Epstein-connected billionaire sugar baron Pepe Fanjul and his brother Alfonso. At that time, the Daily Mail reported that Clinton and Pepe appeared in Epstein's black book of celebrity, wealthy, and influential contacts. The Daily Mail reported that after the news of the celebrity donors' lavish fundraisers, supporters of McCormick in Trump world started to call Dr. Oz a hypocrite. Both candidates have been vying for an endorsement from the former President Donald Trump leading up to the May 17th primary. So we're getting there, folks, but not there yet. But I don't know if I'm, I'd be throwing my hat in the ring for Dr. Oz if I lived in Pennsylvania. Now, like the hypocritical fraud he truly is, Oz has, and this is a quote, Oz has repeatedly attacked McCormick for receiving donations from former work colleagues who aren't registered Republicans, a Trump world source uh, told the, the publication. But who do you see when you look behind Oz's curtain? The source questioned. Anti-Trump Hollywood left-wingers? Mega donors to Hillary Clinton? And associates of Jeffrey Epstein? There isn't a single thing about Oz that doesn't raise major red flags for Republican voters. And the communications director for the celebrity doctor, Brittany Yannick, told the Daily Mail that there is nothing hypocritical in taking money from the Epstein and Clinton-connected billionaire sugar baron and throwing the accusation back at McCormick. Pepe Fanjul is a major donor to President Trump and other America First Republicans, Yannick said. That's disturbing. That's quite the contrast from the never-Trumpers and liberal Democrats funding the Wall Street insider David McCormick's campaign. Oh, we got such great choices, don't we, folks? But as the Daily Mail noted, McCormick has hired many Trump White House alumni, including Cliff Sims and Stephen Miller. And at the same time, a McCormick-aligned super PAC is working with Kellyanne Conway. So both sides of this, folks, both sides of this, folks, are fucked. Now, former rep Mark Foley um, from Florida told the Daily Mail that both sides would portray the other as a product of special interest groups 
So this guy's out of it and he's calling it out. He's saying the Republican Party has changed so much. Before it was bankers, lawyers, and Wall Street types. Now it's plumbers, pipe fitters, police, firefighters, business owners. They try to identify someone and make the analogy that somehow somehow they're bought or sold by the, a specific interest. And um, as it turns out, in my quote here, folks, um, to finish out this article, they're all influenced by those special interests. Now, how can I say that? Well, because it's also been um, put out in a video here that somebody was uh, brave enough to take of a reaction of a question asked to um, Texas's Greg Abbott, who had dodged the question uh, twice, apparently, when he was asked to disavow Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. So let's read on. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott dodged when asked to denounce billionaire Klaus Schwab in his controversial World Economic Forum, WEF, after being asked by a comedian, Cassidy Campbell. Good job, Cassidy. Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, and this is a quote, um, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has bragged about infiltrating governments and grooming political leaders, said Campbell, after Abbott agreed to answer his question. And I think this is uh, Campbell again. Now, you know, he's for the Great Reset, pushing for it. Agenda 2030, complete globalization. And Campbell asks, do you denounce the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, and the Great Reset? And rather than a simple yes or no, Abbott replies, listen, I'm not a globalist. I'm a Texas first and America first person. And Campbell asked him again, but do you denounce Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset? And Abbott deftly dodged the question a second time. Instead, Abbott replies, I promote Texas and America. Do you now? Now, Abbott, who told Campbell he is a Texas first and America first person, is listed as a member on the WEF's website. And in fact, Abbott attended WEF events recently, including the January 2020 WEF event in Davos, Switzerland. Oh, right before COVID hit. He was there. What a quinky dink. A productive last day, it says, and this is a quote from from Abbott, a productive last day in Davos at the World Economic Forum. This morning, I met with Francois Legault, a premier of Quebec, who's also a real COVID piece of shit up there in Quebec, too. And Texas has a strong economic relationship, he says, with Quebec. And we are proud to be here uh, to continue and strengthen this bond. And it says, at WEF and hashtag WEF20. Another quote from Abbott. Busy day at the World Economic Forum in Davos. I met with Secretary Wilbur Ross to discuss the USMCA and China trade deals. Texas will be a winner. Will it? Now, separately, he says in the quote, I met with a CEO. I don't know if he discloses it. It says, separately, I met with a CEO who is moving his business from another state to Texas. And leaders love the Texas approach to business. Oh, man. Now, it says in the article, the WF has come under scrutiny after videos of Schwab admitting to his organization has been penetrating high-level position in Western governments in order to usher in his great reset surfaced, uh, resurfaced online. 
And the Great Reset, uh, which is once claimed by fact-checkers to be some sort of conspiracy theory, there it is again, is understood by many to be a reset of global economics to replace the current system. Doesn't sound at all like what's been happening in these past couple articles we've been talking about, huh? Now, Schwab appears to refer to this process as the Fourth Industrial Revolution has written two books on the subject. And concerns with the Great Reset include the ideas of population control, high-tech invasive surveillance. Remember that AI story we were in Eric Schmidt ship we were just talking about a little while ago? A global security credit system, or a social credit system, and the calculated destruction of economies to usher in a world government in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. But experts, experts, have dismissed these concerns as unwarranted and those who express them as conspiracy theorists. I guess we are. Well, another conspiracy theorist as of late uh, that's uh, just recently had to come out and apologize for saying uh, such things is Madison Cawthorn. And I'm going to end with this one this week, folks. Madison Cawthorn, uh, and this is from Fox shit-ass controlled opposition news, so of course I archive.todate it because don't give them any clicks. Fuck them. Uh, Madison Cawthorn addresses orgy and cocaine controversy. Cawthorn said he wasn't talking specifically about his fellow GOP lawmakers. Of course he wasn't. Because freshman Madison Cawthorn on Friday addressed the firestorm that he created in Washington, D.C. by depicting his short time in Congress as one witnessing cocaine, drug use, espionage, well, that's definitely proven, and sexual perversion. And I, th- I don't think we have to do anything more to pervert that, uh, to, to show that one. Now, the cocaine one, yeah, I'm sure. Um, in a statement Friday, Cawthorn, uh, who's a Republican from North Carolina, mm. where they have the uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, didn't walk back his recent comments, but tried to distinguish that he wasn't talking specifically about his fellow GOP lawmakers. Now, he says uh, corruption and unethical activities exist in Washington. And uh, in a statement first obtained by Fox News Digital, uh, he says, it's an indisputable fact. If you don't think that's true, you've not witnessed the swamp. But that's also because his comments uh, made on a recent podcast appearance calling out corruption have been used by the left and the media to disparage his Republican colleagues and falsely insinuate their involvement in illicit activities. Oh, In a recent interview for the Warrior Poet Society podcast, Cawthorn uh, recounted what he called an invitation to an orgy, saying that he has been sexually solicited by Washington officials. He also claims to have witnessed hard drug use and what he called espionage. Now, he doesn't get into too much other detail, but the statements drew the ire of fellow Republicans, of course they did, who demanded to know names. And GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, called a meeting with Cawthorn to address the remarks. Boy, I would love to have a transcript of that conversation, wouldn't you? I bet you the uh, CIA or other intelligence agencies probably had a bug in the room, though. Um, just to find out what the fuck was going on with their orgies or cocaine or, or you know, illegal sex rings uh, with children and shit. But if they're inviting this guy, folks, scrolled up here to show this guy in the wheelchair to the or- orgies, they're some sick fucks. Now, 
the statements through the ire of Republican colleagues, yada, yada, yada. And to finish out the article, it said um, that uh, Cawthorn did not offer an apology in his statement, but uh, he was told by McCarthy that I just told him he's lost my trust. He's going to have to earn it back. And I laid out everything I find is unbecoming. Now, McCar- McCarthy told that to Axios um, after his meeting with Cawthorn. And, um, and you can't just say, you can't do this again. I mean, he's got a lot of members very upset. What do you mean you can't just say you can't do this again? What do you mean by that, Kevin? Does he mean that you can't come out and call you out for you know being uh, bedfellows with people like Frank Luntz? Um, hmm, maybe. It's also said, uh, caught, uh, quoted here from Cawthorn, I've considered for several days how to best address this con- controversy. The culture in Washington is corrupt. Human nature is fallen. Compromising activities occur because when other people can place you in compromising positions, they control you. It's all about power. But my colleagues and I are fighting that corruption. I'm sure you are. And he accused the left and the media of trying to use his words to divide the Republican Party. He says, I will not back down to the mob and I will not let them win. I will continue fighting for, for many years to come. But I don't think so. Not, not when you cave in to Kevin McCarthy. Not when you cave in to all the special interests that influenced Kevin McCarthy via ways of Frank Luntz, his pal and once roommate like Tucker Carlson exposed him for, or many other things that he's, he's done over the past few years, things that he hasn't stopped, things that he's been for. I don't think so. So my final thoughts on this week's episode are, is that there is no salvation in the Republican Party. Yes, we do have people like Matt, Ga- Matt Gates, uh, Mad Matt Gates, <laughs> and, and Ron Johnson, uh, radical Ron Johnson. We do have people like that, but not always. In fact, most of the time, they're shit heels, they're shit cons, like Kevin McCarthy pictured here in front of me. And people like Madison Cawthorn, who are sort of new to the game, that are calling this stuff out, they get caught up because of what, what the impact their words have. Um, they're called into these little offices by people like McCarthy and they're read the riot act and they're told, don't you ever do that shit again. Don't you ever do that to us or put us in that position. And they mostly go along with it. So if we're going to win this fight, if we're going to win this war, the other war that we've been talking about here on the new prisoners, folks, we have to do a hell of a lot more than just elect a few Republicans. We have to hold them to account and hold ourselves to account. So with that, until we meet again, and until we are free, we are the new prisoners. Thank you for listening to The New Prisoners. Let us know what you think about this week's topics on our Minds page and Substack, or leave a comment under our video on BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, and Brideon. You can also risk being shadow banned, suspended, or permanently banned on Twitter and Instagram with us, or speak freely with us on Gab. Please feel free to share your own sources with us, and remember to share the information we provided you here. You never know what kind of difference it could make. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, email the new prisoner number six at protonmail.com. 
Provide a brief description of the topic or topics that you would like to discuss, and a screener will contact you. You can always choose to appear anonymously. And you can also donate to The New Prisoners through anchor.fm slash the new prisoner number six slash support. There you can make a monthly donation of 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. We also have a subscribe star where you can make a one-time or recurring contribution at subscribestar.com slash the hyphen new hyphen prisoners. Or you could donate US dollars and crypto to us on Mines and Odyssey. All donations go towards studio upgrades to make more content and advertising to spread the word about the show. Every amount is appreciated. Demand answers, not orders. We are the new prisoners.